Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. and also part of the Patriot Journalist Network. And you can find the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. Tonight we have a show which we have a number of topics we'll be discussing tonight, especially with all that's uh, happened in the uh, past weeks, uh, as well as uh, the things more recent. We'll talk about those, uh, a couple of them. Uh, One is uh, there's been some speculation out there. Two things. One, uh, there's been some talk. Uh, some think it may be a smoke screen, but there's some talk about Hillary Clinton. Uh, because of her falls and her health, uh, the DNC is discussing her replacement. Some of the names that have been coming up through that are possibly, of course, Bernie Sanders or uh, Biden. So we'll see if there will be any of uh, those two, if that even happens. Uh, but we'll discuss that more tonight, uh, as well as there are some reports that some are contending that there may be out there a, a body double. Uh, for Hillary Clinton. There's been some posts on social media uh, that suggest that there's someone out there who looks uh, very much like her. It's some uh, before and after shots, so we'll be discussing that, uh, as well as uh, some articles I have uh, that we'll go through and uh, discussing those, as well as we're going to look to have uh, an audio clip. I just got to get that one ready for us. Uh, It's about a 50-minute clip. We'll play it later uh, on Michael Savage uh, talking about some things with InfoWars' Alex Jones. Uh, we'll have uh, Cindy Todd uh, kind of give us an intro on that and talk more about that, as well as uh, Kelly. Uh, we'll be introducing our guest for tonight, uh, where we will be discussing our presidential electoral system, and that will be uh, with our guest tonight when he gives us a call in, James Manship. And I do see some folks on the line, so when you're ready to chime in, just push the one on your number dial. And we'll get in. We'll get you uh, into the show. And so uh, we you see it uh, looks like Cindy wants to get in. So let's go ahead and uh, bring her in. Thank you very much, Cindy, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Well, I'm doing fine. <clears throat> How about you guys? Great. Just, uh, you know, get some things together. I, I got that audio uh, late, but I appreciate it. We'll, we'll be playing it later. I am uh, getting a... Uh, it together now so we can have uh, the audio here for the show. Uh, but we will, uh, we'll get it there. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you give us a, well, a, a little, uh, a little teaser on that. 
Well, let me just tell you, um, this election has been the most bizarre election uh, in my lifetime. I've never seen anything like it. Now, they say that there were some pretty bizarre ones way back when where there was actually some violence, you know, between the candidates and stuff. Maybe so. But I can't even imagine that the scale of bizarreness could be as big as it is now. And I think the reason for that is because people are becoming so bizarre. And the reason they're becoming so bizarre is because they're so uneducated. The dumbing down of America has been accomplished. It is a successful operation. And I tell you what, you can... You can see that. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a guy named Mark Dice. He goes around, you know, different places, usually in California. That's where all the nuts are anyway. But he goes all over the place. He's in Washington, New York, L.A., whatever, (laughs) wherever you can find nut cases that have been trained and manipulated by the school system, the public school system. Anyway, he goes on these man-on-the-street interviews. And a lot of times he has these petitions that he wants people to sign and stuff like that. Petitions like, um, let's let's petition Hillary to pick Karl Marx as her running mate. Um, uh, You know, because she's been advised by him for several years now. (laughs) Petitions for all kinds of falderal, like $100 a month for gay reparations. Um, There was a petition to ban cash. There was a few other things. Anyway, this one particular one I was looking at today, he's doing one of his man-on-the-street sessions, and he's going around asking people, interviewing people, what do you think about the recent news that um, Trump's two sons have killed a triceratops while hunting? And there's a picture of it right there on the website. I mean, there is one. There's a Photoshopped picture of one of his sons with a triceratops dead behind it, right? (laughs) I mean, it's hilarious. But anyway, I mean, you can't believe the people. I mean, I I understand. It's only like a 15, 20-minute video, and you're going to see the worst of the worst. The ones that, you know, he picks um, are on there. You don't see all the interviews where people said, you know, laughed at him and said, oh, that's a funny joke. There are no dinosaurs, right? Um, so you don't get to see those, but the fact that he can make this whole 15-minute clip out of people who still think there are right, uh, ty- ty- tyrant, no, not tyrant, ty- pterodactyls. He used okay, he used pterodactyls, triceratops, the saber-toothed tiger, and the woolly, the woolly mammoth. <laughs> okay, I mean, I mean how. How absolutely ludicrous these young people. Now, most of them were young, but one guy that was on there had to have been over 50 years old. And I'm, tell, I'm telling you, we've had at least two generations of people so totally dumbed down that they don't even know what a triceratops is and that it's been extinct for, you know, thousands of years. They have no yeah, idea. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we're fighting today. What are we fighting for in this election? We're fighting against people who have no clue, Robert. They have no clue. 
and it is just so discouraging to see people like that and know that they're going to vote. I mean, it's like, hey, I want to go back to the days when you had to show that you had an education and a job to vote. That's what I want to see. I want to see that you, you can prove that you can read and write and that, you, that you've had an education, you've graduated from high school, and, and then you can vote. That's what I well, want to see. Well, it's not in high school anymore. anymore. <laughs> huh? Not even oh, high well, school anymore. I, I mean, they're coming out of high school illiterate. Absolutely. But even even still, I mean, just, just tell them that they have to um, have a job before they can vote. That's one of the things that they used to require was that you couldn't vote unless you had a job or some kind of property or something. You had to show that you weren't voting your pocketbook. Right, right. And that is that is no longer even on the table for conversation. You know what what's in your wallet. <laughs> you know. Well, you, it's, they're, they're saying we're, they're, people are being disenfranchised that way. Exactly, but you know what? Some people deserve to be disenfranchised. If you don't know that there is no such thing as a triceratops anymore, if you don't know that all the woolly mammoths are dead. You don't belong in the voting booth. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You just don't belong there. Um, if you're on welfare, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm not going to let you go down there and vote yourself some more of my money. Yeah, that's, that's true what you're too. Going into, that's what you're going into that's the exactly voting booth. That's exactly what they're going to do. That's very good point. So, and and this was foreseen a long time ago, Robert, by all of our forefathers. That's the reason our the, every state's voting laws had qualifications for anybody that could vote. Um, and that's one of the reasons that women couldn't vote, because they weren't necessarily educated and didn't have a job. So what was their motivation to vote, you know? Um, they, were, they were seen as just being emotional issues. That, that women would be uh, um, voting for, which I think really makes a lot of sense, except that these days there's too many women who are voting. I mean, excuse me, they are educated and they do have jobs. And so there has to be just as much freedom for a woman to vote as a man. But I tell you what, both genders have really got to I mean, we've got a second think who we're allowing to vote. It's unbelievable. Yeah, disenfranchisement, maybe so. Um, but I don't know. What, I don't know what we're going to do other than that because, as um, de Tocqueville already stated um, hundreds of years ago, that um, people will vote uh, largesse from the Treasury, period. Mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a democracy, people are going to vote largesse from the treasury, and and there's it's it's a um, it's an unwritten law of democracy that that's going to happen. And and the reason and and the forefathers said when they walked out of the constitutional convention, um, they, uh, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who was asked what what kind of government did you give us, and he said. We gave you a, a republic if you can keep it because not just anybody and not just any um, 
moral, morally unsound group of people can keep a republic or a democracy. If the people aren't moral, the democracy will fail. And that's unfortunately where we've come to. Our people have lost almost every inch of morality that we ever had. Even Christians are exhibiting just really sad moral um, examples. Really sad moral examples. So anyway, I I thought it was funny. People were um, loving Karl Marx as her running mate. Unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, the guy's dead, right? So that's one thing against him. All right, where were they? Well, that's okay. So the people voting for are too. <laughs> well, but you know they're 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 voting for her. That's the problem. So, will she? Here's the question: Is she going to make it to the election? Will she make it to November? Um, Robert Stone says. She yeah, won't. that's that's part of our discussion tonight. Yeah. Well, you know, I told you there's two sections on that one uh, video um, um, link that I gave you. One is Alex Jones with um, (laughs) – one is Alex Jones with uh, with Savage. Yeah, we've got got that. Yeah, yeah, I've got that audio. The other one's with him and Michael – Robert Stone. And Robert Stone says, uh, now you know he is uh, stonecoldtruth.com. That's who he is. Now, he yeah, says we've trying that to get, Yeah, I've been working with uh, somebody trying to get him on the show as well. Uh, good luck. Everybody's got him on their show. Anyway, no, um, I tell you what, yeah. he's a busy guy. Anyway, Hillary, he said, will we'll back out of the debates. He said that she won't even be able to stand up for 90 minutes. That's how bad a hell she's in. She can't remember. Oh, I agree she's, with got that. A little, she's got an earpiece in her ear at all times so that people can give her intelligent words to speak because she just can't put things together. Um, the DNC will be, uh, he says that the DNC is either, I couldn't figure out what he meant, whether he was saying they already did have the meeting or they're going to have the meeting, that where they're, they're going to pick a, a candidate. Yeah, and do you know who he prognosticizes will be their pick to replace her when she completely craps out? Uh, <laughs> now, I'm, no, I did not hear. I, I didn't, I didn't about, listen to that part of the audio. Well, that's okay. Um, you and I talked about this, I don't know how many days ago, we talked about who the choices might be if, if they replaced her. <laughs> this did not come up between us. He thinks, and he's like, 99% sure it's going to be Michelle Obama. Can oh, you, you got to be kidding that? me. Talk about a puppet regime. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Well, I so, think, you well, know, here's the thing. But she's more untruth. I think that one, I, I, let, let her have it. Because let me think, I think she's more untruth than Donald Trump. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> You know, with with Michelle Obama as a choice, people will automatically assume that she will be the puppet queen of Obama and the rest of the, you know, the DNC. Oh, queen is right, because they just want to be like royalty. Right. 
Right. And, and like, she will be totally controlled, and people know that. So they're like, okay, we'll vote for her because we know that actually it's just like another Obama um, term. Um, if they're, you know, both up there in the White House, he's going to tell her every single move. So, oh, we can vote for her. That'll be great. The women will vote for her. The black people will vote for her. So she really, she really would be an awesome. But he doesn't, he doesn't think so much of the Biden um, suggestion that you thought. He, he doesn't think Biden. Well, I wasn't. No, I'm. I, I, the, those were the two we discussed, which was Biden or Bernie Sanders. Uh, that wasn't yeah. my, uh, my, my pick. I, to be honest, I never even speculated on who they might pick, uh, but that was uh, the, uh, two of the names that were being bandered about. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, about. I, I don't, I can't even imagine they would pick Biden. Uh, first of all, he's just—he's kind of like Hillary is. He's, he's not in that good a shape. Um, but anyway, I, I mean, he's not as bad as she. But here's the thing, you know, I've—I've been seeing these rumors going around that the DNC is is accusing Trump or his operative, somebody in the Trump campaign, somebody behind Trump, is trying to poison Hillary. And, and, and you remember what I said. Yeah, you remember. It's just a rumor that I heard on the, only on Facebook now. This is, you know, this is not gospel truth. Right. You know how rumors go around. But, you know, Facebook's rumors today end up, um, CNN stories for tomorrow. So, <laughs> just keep your eye, <laughs> keep your ear out, keep your ear out for that accusation. Um, but anyway, here's the real truth of it. I think the DNC party, party in general, I think they are the ones that are poisoning her. I think they're purposely killing that woman so that she can't run. They never did want her, and and they don't know how to get her, they don't know how to get rid of her. Because she knows too many of the. Well, they don't want Bernie Sanders either. I don't think. No, I, well, I don't know. They may or may not. But here's the thing, probably not. But anyway, uh, well, they're scared of of Bernie. They know he's a good communist, just like they are. But they're scared of his actual record, and and they don't know he's too unpredictable, kind of like Donald Trump is. That's the reason they don't like Donald Trump either. He's too too unpredictable. But um. You you can't you can't imagine the going on behind the scenes, and they're like they're sitting there saying to each other, "We can't take this woman out. We can't we you know back before the you know primaries. They're saying we can't take this woman out. She'll dump all of our secrets out. She she'll be ticked at us if we do this to her again because they already did it to her. Oh uh, yeah, so yeah, with Obama, she's so freaked. She, you know I think that that's they why she's so driven. Yeah, exactly. She's, she's so driven that it could so kill her. Exactly. She feels so entitled, and 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 so she thinks that everybody just loves her. She has totally deluded herself. I believe she's totally deluded herself. She really thinks that people love her. I don't know how she can get that since she has to pay people to show up at her rallies. But that's the that I don't think she can even think rationally anymore. If you want to know the truth, I think she's just so inside of herself. She's so introverted now that that it's like a um, a schizophrenic person who can only think from the inside. Um, they they have no concept of real life on the uh, outside of their own little brain, you know. 
So anyway, well, and I think it's because Carolyn put puts it in the chat. Uh, this is insane. <laughs> it is insane. It is insane. And you know what I'm saying sounds insane. What Robert Stone is talking about sounds insane. What um, Michael Savage wrote a book, and they're going to talk about it in the in the clip. He wrote a book, and and it's insane the things that he's saying. But you know what? They're what's really happening. That's what I'm telling you. It is so bizarre what is happening out there, completely bizarre, um, something that you've never seen before. I mean, who would have thought that we would come to a place? Now, well, we did think this, but we didn't think it, it was going to come from this way. You know, I thought that Obama would somehow stop this election from happening. I thought that. No, I knew No, I never thought that. From his second win, I have been thinking there's a good chance that he could keep this election from happening altogether and stay in office. And now I'm no, I never thought that. It's even more I am. I'm thinking even more, but the problem is I thought that he was going to do it by riots in the streets, you know, up with up Oh, you mean like uh, like um Oh, right. yeah, stop the elections right. through, uh, gosh, right. I'm having a brain freeze here, uh, martial because law. Martial law, martial law, right. That he would stop it from martial law. Here we have another situation that they have come up with because there's too much talk around, I guess, about martial law, so maybe they don't want to do that. I don't know. But now they've come up with another solution. Our candidate is dying, so we have to have time to come up with a new one. We have to have... We have to have a special election now in the DNC party. We have to stop the whole thing and have a special election. We'll set that up for November. And then after that, we'll go into another campaign season. And then we'll elect who we're going to elect for president. I can see that happening. Hmm. That gives them more time in office to do what they've been trying to do all along. And they may get away with it. If they've got just a little more time, I'm not. They're just sitting there going, "We just need a little more time." <laughs> anyway, well, Robert we'll, we'll Stone. Talk to, you know, our, our guest is our guest is going to be here shortly, uh, and then we can we can uh, discuss that with him on that certainly. Okay. Okay. Well, let, let me tell uh, you. While we're waiting, go ahead. Just one more thing um, about what um, Robert Stone said. Apparently. Uh, StoneColdTruth.com is going to leak something in the next few days regarding Gaddafi's removal in Libya. And he says that this is truly going to shock people. He says, Alex Jones says, is this like WikiLeaks level expose? And he said, yes, this will rock the entire election. So if it is picked up by the media, I see it rocking an election. If the media discredits it, makes fun of it, like they usually do with things that these people um, leak or, you know, expose, then it will go nowhere and it will fall flat. I mean, you would have thought that finding emails that prove that Hillary was – leaving her server open for people to get state secrets, you would think that the the expose of that would have shut her down completely. 
and and according to the law, by the way, according to the law, by the way, should have disqualified her and put her in prison for three years or less and a fine, okay? That is what the law actually states about what she did. Um, She destroyed phones. Um, right. And according to the one interview I saw, Brother, her, yes, her age did. And right. what about those? What about those three aides that yes. kept pleading the fifth in front of Congress, and then one mm-hmm. didn't even show up at all? And then we do find out that she erased emails. We found that out that she totally uh, erased emails. That is against the law. It's against the law what she did. For um, what's his name, the FBI guy. To say he doesn't Comey. recommend, uh, yeah, and to, for Comey to recommend that he, to say that he doesn't recommend um, prosecution is a scandal. It's a scandal. Travesty Robert. of justice? <laughs> it's a travesty of justice. It's absolutely bonkers berserk. And that is why my original statement from the show counts even more. This is bizarre, the whole thing. Bizarre. These are these are not rumors. These things have been proven. Documentation. Mm-hmm. These things have been proven. Um, oh, yeah, that was, I was watching, uh, I, I, got, I got a video this morning where uh, I should have made an audio of it, where this lady was shocked when they heard about them destroying it. She was like, when the lady, uh, she was on CNN, and she was talking to a guy, and he was talking about, um, you know, them destroying the stones with hammers. She kept, she interjected and was like, fact check that, fact check that, fact check that, and, and maybe we'll get that audio if I can find it. Um, and then when he, they were like, yeah, yeah, that actually happened, she was like, wow, they did. She was like shocked. I mean, maybe feigned shock, you know, that they, that they actually destroyed it. I mean, oh, my gosh, you got to fact check it. you got to make sure right now. So like right now, you know, do that, you know, fact check and make sure what this guy just said is true, and it was true. Mhm. Well, you know, the fact that someone on CNN is allowing that on their show is kind of amazing, really. It's really kind of it's either accidental or it's amazing. Oh, I think it was accidental. She seemed shocked that even he brought it up, and then she immediately wanted it to be fact checked, like right there. So maybe it surprised her. Thinking, and she was probably thinking when they fact check it, they would find out that that was one of those rumors. But but unfortunately, right. what she found out was that it was true. So so anyway, uh, it's 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 pretty amazing. Is yeah, Kelly I'll tell you what, I mean, uh, well, no, 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 yeah, he's actually speaking with uh, our guest, and so let's uh, do this a little prematurely, and that is uh, to hear from the Patriot Journalist Network. And if we don't hear, uh, hear from our guests, we'll go ahead and play uh, that audio. Maybe he can hear part of uh, the clip and make comment as well. But let's go ahead and first hear from the Patriot Journalist Network. You're not just listening to a show. You're part of the powerful voice of the conservative conversation on Blog Talk Radio. Nothing worthwhile has ever been accomplished without teamwork. PJNet invites you to help make a difference by adding your voice to the team grassroots conservatives working together to take our country back. To find out more, check out the PJNet hashtag and visit our website at PatriotJournalist.com. 
Let PJNet add our muscle to your hustle. And definitely, folks, check out the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. And also visit uh, our show's website at www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com. Check out our many different pages on there, including our Bards Logic Newsroom, where you can see one of the top articles, uh, which is the title, Colin Power urged Hillary Clinton's team not to scapegoat him for her private server leaked emails reveal. And you may have heard uh, somewhat about that, uh, where they're trying to point some fingers at Colin Powell for, I believe, a suggestion that he made uh, one point some years ago about doing just that, uh, having private servers. Uh, but you can read more of that on the article that you can find at the Bards Logic Political Talk Newsroom at www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com. And I see here we have not yet have our uh, our guest in, so we'll, we've talked to a couple minutes, you know, first half hour uh, about that audio. Uh, so perhaps we should go ahead and play that. And then if they come in uh, while it's it's going, we'll just have to let them listen to that, maybe make some comment on it and to go ahead and uh, move forward that way. And so we do have uh, some other callers. If you would like to get in, just push the one on your number dial and we will uh, get you into the show. And, uh, and then Carolyn, uh, the chat has uh, something about 18,000. Uh, emails, probably 18,000 more. So let's go ahead and hear Michael Savage on InfoWars. Well, I got to tell you, there's probably three people uh, in the last few decades that have been on the front lines of fighting globalism and getting made fun of it. Uh, That's Michael Savage, Alex Jones, and Matt Drudge. And I guess we're all here today because I'm told he just talked to Drudge and Drudge is tuned in right now. Scorched Earth, Restoring the Country After Obama, Michael Savage, very powerful book. Just caught it today, been thumbing through it. I'm a big history buff, cannot wait to read this book. We need to make this number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It it is a manifesto against the globalists that have literally taken this country and Europe over. Brexit is only the beginning. The globalists are panicking in every major publication they run. Uh, The uh, Economist, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post saying that if Trump defeats Hillary, the New World Order is basically uh, broke back. So... We are in the title match of history. Everyone should go to bookstores to make this the number one book. Buy it in bookstores everywhere today. Scorched Earth. This is the front lines of the info war. Joining us for the next uh, 20 minutes or so is Michael Savage of the Savage Nation, one of the top radio shows in the country, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, You've got the floor, my friend. Let's talk about where we are, what we're facing, two minutes to midnight. Well, number one, you are you are really the field marshal of it all, Alex. Come on. We know that they're more afraid of you and InfoWars than almost anyone else in the media. I mean, you, Matt Trudge, there aren't too many left. That's what's worrisome, isn't it, Alex? And you were named by this evil machine specifically. And I would say that, you know, you say hyperbole and this and that. We are one bad election away from losing everything, which is on the back of my book cover. And I don't know that we can recover from Obama's scorched earth policies. We know he's trampled the Constitution. And I don't know how any of your listeners, you know, whatever the side they're on, you know, you know and I know you get all the opposition listening. And I'd like all of the good progressives who listen to Alex to see if they can nail him to a cross. Tell me that one of these things has not magnified under this Cretan in the White House. 
Is this not becoming a third world nation of terror? Check yes. Riots? Check Black Lives Matter. Mobs? Check Black Lives Matter. Chaos? Check Barack Obama. Terror, riots, mobs, and chaos. This is a novelty in American history. I haven't seen anything like this historically since the 60s. And before that, when was the last time you've seen America like this? And the beauty of all of this, Alex, is how he's gotten away with it. Because you've got to give him credit. Barry Obama is the slickest salesman of communism the world has ever, ever discovered. No screaming, no yelling, no threats. Just a, a silk-smooth, good-looking, nice guy with a lovely wife and children selling the most evil poison the world has ever, ever been asked to ingest. And look how far he's gotten. And every time he gets away with another outrage against this nation, he raises the stakes like a junkie. He needs a higher dose of insult in order to maintain the high. Am I wrong, Alex? You're dead on, Mr. Savage. Dr. Savage, please continue. So the question is, okay, I'm, I'm complaining about him. I'm saying she's worse, which is true, which is ludicrous. She says America wants change. From what? From the same policies she's going to continue? She's suddenly not a progressive lunatic? When, wait a minute. She's going to change Obama's policies in which way? Make them worse? How she can't go the other way, and then she'd be Donald Trump. So it means she's going to make it even worse than him. That's if she remembers what she's supposed to do, and that's doubtful, as you well know, because she doesn't know how many times she fainted. Uh, so the point is, how do we uncouple this insanity? It is going to be really hard. You know and I know there was a UAC in the 1950s, and it's a dirty word of the most dirty of words, the House of Un-American Activities Committee, which was run by one of the great American patriots, Senator McCarthy. He has been completely decimated by the left. McCarthy was a tail gunner in World War II, one of the most dangerous positions you could ever have in an airplane, right? Belly gunner, B-24. Easiest missions. target was the tail. That's what they attacked. Listen what the left did to him. They called him, they mocked him and called him tail gunner Joe. In other words, they took his heroism and tried to turn it into a mockery. That was in the 50s, Alex, to show you who they were already, the communists. So what was McCarthy saying, this great war hero? He was saying that Hollywood had been in, infiltrated by communists. The journalists had been infiltrated by communists. Academia had been infiltrated by communists. And the government itself. Well, what happened was they had the hearings. They ruined him. They destroyed the man. And then what happened in the 1990s, I'm sure you remember the book, the Venona Papers came out. It was a, a Soviet Russian publication. Turned out it was all true. The Russian documents came out. It was worse than what McCarthy was saying. Worse. It confirmed who in Hollywood, who in academia, who in government was, in fact, an operative of the Soviet Union. So there were subversives. UAC was exactly on target. I say the only way we can save this nation is not talking about it, but by rooting out the subversives in the United States of America. And I know many libertarians are afraid of this for fear that it will turn on them. Well, let's put that fear aside for the moment. In fact, let me just add this since you're saying this, because this is a point I want to make. If you look at the globalists, if you look at their leftists, they're saying the alt-right can't be tolerated. They're saying we need to be shut down and arrested. Hillary says she's going to shut down Breitbart. That means Drudge, you. They say they're bringing back fairness doctrine. They say they're coming after us. They're run by this foreign globalist Soros. Russia's already kicked him out. These are foreign globalists here overthrowing our country, 
So under the Constitution, these aren't even citizens. They don't have the rights. They're here overthrowing the system. To survive, we must go on the offensive. We must root them out. It's the only way to ever beat them. They are criminals. They are subversives. They are Saul Alinsky pledging to Lucifer. Please continue. Yeah, they want to lynch all of us, if not electronically, then physically. And the fact of the matter is they have names. These are not nameless, faceless organizations. The number one and the worst of them all, in my humble opinion, is the ACLU. The Anti-Christian Liberties Union is the number one. They're the head of the snake. Now, the man behind all of it is George Soros, the most evil man on the planet, in my estimation. The absolutely most evil person the world has seen in modern times. You know, you don't have to hang people, electrocute them, put them in cages. You don't have to do the things that ISIS is doing to be evil. He's evil on a larger scale than the ISIS executioners are, because he's gutting the United States of America. He's trampling on our Constitution. He helped fund the, the Arab Spring. He helped fund the Arab Spring. Hillary, all of them. Amen. And I keep saying she owns it. He was the one who, who, by the way, he funded it. But you know who was the architect the best I can put together? Was Zbigniew Brzezinski, That's Jimmy right. Carter's national security advisor. Brzezinski was the architect. Soros was the financier. Hillary Clinton was the publicist and an actor, along with John Kerry. I'd say she, she was the quarterback with Kerry and Obama. She destroyed the Middle East. She owns that. How does the media, forget the media, why doesn't Trump put her on a cross with that and one? And by the way, Mr. Savage, Dr. Savage, that's not hyperbole. She literally destabilized 20-something countries that Al-Qaeda and ISIS are running around. Hundreds of thousands of dead Christians. They won't even let Christians out of the region. It's just, and these people are demons, just like the true liberal Assange said, look, I've got the documents. The press is dead if she gets in. Our necks are in nooses. She's a demon. You must stop her. I hear you, and I also saw who wrote the other day that Obama, the nice, slick, smooth, nice family man, has created the greatest surveillance state in the history of the world. And suddenly liberals are afraid of it because they understand what happens when the guillotine uh, stops, starts falling. First, it takes out your opposition. But as, um, as the world learned during the French Revolution, the, the guillotine has an unlimited taste for blood. And it doesn't stop with the enemies of the revolution. Then they turn on their own kind and start executing their own so-called so counter-revolutionaries, as was done in the Soviet Union, Always happens. As, was done in, as was done in Cuba, as was done in Hitler's Germany. They killed their own. The brown shirts. And the, the guillotine keeps falling and cuts heads. It is the most thirsty instrument on earth. And that's why the left ought to step up and shut their fat mouths when we stand up to these monsters. These monsters need to be stopped or we're all finished, left, right, and center. That's right. So how do we stop them? Your book, I just got it, incredible, gets into the blueprint, sir, with your incredible historical understanding. How do we beat these bastards? Because they know we've got them in a the corner now, but what tricks are they going to play? And then if we get Trump in, the battle just begins. What do we do? Oh, you said the magic words. If Trump wins, the battle begins because we know he is surrounded by neocons. We see that. I was shocked to read yesterday he hired Woolsey. Yeah. Woolsey? The head, former head of the CIA under Bill Clinton is now going to be his CIA director. So I laid in bed last night. He said, wait a minute, what is this about? And I said, well, you know, the CIA is a complicated organization. I mean, you need no, someone who knows how to run it, right? But look at Woolsey's track record. How could he join it as a senior advisor? Why him? Isn't there a returning combat veteran who worked in military intelligence that would have been a better choice? Some higher-up American citizen patriot? Somebody like General Flynn. CIA under Trump. Why Woolsey? Why Foggy Bottom all over again? Okay, but Alex, I, I don't want to waste your no, time. No, please, take time. over. Well, 
the way to defeat the enemy is to know your enemy. The way to know your enemy is to name the enemy. So who, who are the subversive organizations who have, who have destroyed and are destroying our civil liberties? We know the ACLU. We know the Southern Poverty Law Center. Oh, yeah. We know CARE. In my opinion, those are the three top of them. But I want to read to you all the others. Can I do that? Please. Because I made a whole list in, in Scorched Earth. I, I studied the cockroaches. And I said, let's bring them into the light and expose them. Make them scatter like cockroaches when you turn on the light. The request I am making, Alex Jones, and to all your listeners, is this. Name subversive organizations. As organizations you consider to be so far off the ideal of the American way that they are, in fact, subversive. And what does that mean? That means they spend all of their resources going against the wishes of the Constitution and the taxpayer. So who are they? I have a list. They're right here. Who are these organizations? They're trying to conquer us. They've done a pretty good job so far. They see us as deplorable because we just want to be free. National Lawyers Guild. Who are they? One of the most dangerous activist groups in the nation. Every time there was a riot by Black Thugs Matter at an anti-police protest, the scum in the National Lawyers Guild sold out, sent out their deranged psychotic lawyers from the worst law schools in America to make sure the police could not do their jobs. Every last shyster in the National Lawyers Guild is the type of lawyer that you have come to hate in plain English. Now, of course, they will argue that they're just for the underdog, that they're there for the poor immigrant and the oppressed minority. Well, you know what? I don't buy it. I want a lawyer's guild for the tax-paying middle class, Alex, not a lawyer's guild for the subversives who are bringing in refugees, immigrants, whatever you want to call them by the tens of millions. And we have the Soros emails where he admits it's to destabilize the country. Uh, he admits destabilization. Who admitted that? George Soros in the, in, in the latest D.C. leaks and others. He's, he's in there admitting that it's a plan to overthrow Europe and the U.S. and create racial strife. Correct. Alliance for Democracy, um, Amnesty International, Black Lives Matter, Center for American Progress, Center for Media and Democracy. I'll read a few of them. Center for Science and the Public Interest, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics. I have two pages that I researched, Alex, in my book. Is Media Matters and David Brock in there? They're, they're all over the place. You name these organizations, it's like a spider web. Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, Blue Moon Fund, things you never heard of. Ford Foundation. Joyce Foundation. Joyce Foundation. Who ever heard of the Joyce Foundation? HKH Foundation. Dolan Charitable Trust. Vanguard Foundation. Archer Foundation. Solinsky's Back of the Yards Community Council. National Hip Hop Political Convention. Cuban Council of Churches. People don't even know these organizations. These Cockroaches are crawling all over us, devouring our flag of liberty, Al. You're absolutely right, and they admit they want to collapse us and our borders into a world government. Dr. Savage, when you say the battle just begins, and, and I say that if Trump gets in, and I'm not counting our chickens yet, I mean, uh, why do you say the battle just begins? We just lost to Skype. Skype is a wondrous thing when it has its issues. Ladies and gentlemen, this is so historical. The establishments control the left and the right to bring in globalism, but they're making their worldwide takeover with the left. And this is not a liberal group. Liberal means lower taxes, more freedom, more control locally. This is not liberal. They call themselves liberal to have the moral high ground. The Republican establishment is working with them in a big, big way. The book is Scorched Earth. And if you'd like uh, to chime in, uh, give us a call at 347-945-7428. I push the one on your number dial when you're ready to get in. We do have Kelly 
and our guest James on. And uh, Kelly's going to do a little intro, so we'll get him in and then our guest. So thank you very much uh, for coming to the show. Uh, Kelly, how are you tonight? Hey, good. Later on, I want to tell you about an interesting uh, event that happened at the county elections clerk's office. We'll get into that later. But um, let's see. Yeah, James uh, Manship or James Renwick Manship. You can friend him on Facebook. I've known him for four years, and I just I really like this guy. Um, like me, he studies the Constitution, case law, code, statutes, and history, and he gets into action probably more than me as far as getting into action. Um, one of the things I certainly remember, I mean, I met him back in 12 through Facebook, uh, Ron Pauler, I believe, and um, one of the things that happened was in, I believe it was Winchester. Is that is that right, James? Uh, Winchester, Virginia, where... Uh, he was concerned about a very corrupt judge. He submitted a grand jury uh, petition in the morning, and that judge resigned that afternoon. So he gets this weird stuff that I've been talking about that if we were in the 1800s, most people would know about anyway. So he uh, he was at Hillsdale College Constitutional uh, Dinner tonight, and he educated, if you will, Senator Sessions. So some pretty exciting stuff. Um, he's going to talk to us more about some of the details of the elections, the, elect, the presidential electoral system, and some other many other details. But it, 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 I'm just so glad that he's here tonight. And so I guess with that said, uh, welcome, Mr. Manship, and uh, turning it over to you. Okay, let me go ahead and open up his mic. And uh, just such a friend's request there on uh, Facebook. And it looks like uh, one of those, if I got the right, James, uh, uh, has uh, on the top of the page Hillary Clinton impersonator Teresa Barnwell. And I don't know if she's uh, necessarily an impersonator, uh, but I wonder if she's her body double that people have been uh, talking about. Uh, So let's go ahead and bring it over to you, James. Thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Hello. He's been having some technical challenges. I've been actually talking to him. Yeah, yeah, we were earlier, so let me – Refresh if we got uh, James uh, in here. James, are you He's with the us there? Oh, let me see. Oh, gosh. I was just talking to him. He was ready, excited to come on. Uh, and typing him a text. Hit one. Well, you already unmuted him, I guess. So. No. Oh, no. Let me go ahead and try this again. James, okay. are you with us? Hello. I am. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we hear some background sounds that I'm not familiar with, as well as you, James. Thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you tonight? I'm fine. And, and the, the background sounds is that I'm at my waterfront office uh, at National Harbor uh, McDonald's in, just south of Washington, oh. D.C., <laughs> oh, that sounds so good, McDonald's. You found a McDonald's in Washington D.C. How'd that happen? <laughs> well, this is actually right was... near um, where the, they do the CPAC conference at the National Harbor um, uh, Hotel, and uh, I've actually got a picture of me with Senator uh, Jefferson Sessions, and guess who's photobombing us in the background between our two heads is Steve Bannon. <laughs> so anyway, that's from Well, I was, well, I was in D.C. Bad. earlier this summer And I had a heck of a time finding a McDonald's Go ahead <laughs> Well, come to, it's, it's really a, a, the, the greatest McDonald's Because you can actually see the Ferris wheel 
and uh, the Wilson Bridge, you know, I'd prefer it was named something else beside Wilson, but that's beside the point. Uh, and, you know, the the river, it's really a nice place, but they've got Wi-Fi, and so I can get on on the thing, and, and uh, so that's why we hear all the noise. There's two cute little boys, and they're running around and, and have a, doing doing things that little boys do. That's what a lot of the noise is. Anyway, but um, tonight I was at the um, – uh, well, first of all, you're talking – talking about Alex Jones and uh, Michael Savage and talking about communists um, that the uh, Senator McCarthy talked about. Well, guess what, folks? Right now, there's a wonderful scholar named Trevor Loudon. And on Monday, I was at the first um, public showing of his new movie called The Enemies Within Movie. Uh, EnemiesWithinMovie.com And it's a wonderful thing talking about the uh, Democratic Students um, uh, or Democrat Socialist Association, basically communist front groups that now control the Democrats in Congress and control the Democrats in, the, in this administration. So if you want to talk about where the communists are in America today, go see this movie. Um, it's just being released uh, basically this week, uh, Trevor Loudon. So that sort of addresses what we were hearing uh, between Alex and, and Michael Savage. So then, second to uh, being at the um, Hillsdale dinner tonight, it was the Constitution Celebration Dinner, and the speaker was Senator Jefferson Sessions. Everybody calls him Jeff Sessions, but his name is Jefferson Sessions. So he has a great heritage to uphold. Anyway, um, I was the second person to ask a question, and earlier this year I sent him a a letter uh, showing the picture that we had at CPAC down here uh, National Harbor last year um, and I said you have been uh, a leader in proper immigration policies and guess what the founding fathers in the um, immigration a- natural uh, the, the naturalization act of 1795 the fourth clause eliminated what we today call birthright citizenship or anchor babies and so um, I proposed you know, that we take that wording, modify it slightly, get it reintroduced in the next Congress to eliminate anchor babies or, you know, birthright citizenship. Because, you know, one of the things that's happening, Mm -hmm. China is filling up, you know, Boeing airplanes, flying them to California, putting them in private hospitals. The women have uh, babies in America, and they're now American citizens. Mm-hmm. So you have you have birth tourism going on in America because <laughs> of this idiotic policy. Um, and I think there's only one other country in the world that do, does this. And so you know it's just it's ludicrous. And our well you know wise thinking founding fathers uh, in the Naturalization Act of 1795 outlawed it. Um, anyway, so that was I started the question with that, and then I said. And But more importantly, in the um, farewell address of 1796, 17th of September 1796, uh, it was actually uh, written and, and it was published on the 19th, but Washington said, beware of innovations that would alter the energy of the system and undermine what could not be directly overthrown. Washington warned of the spirit of party and warned of the spirit of innovation. One innovation that has been done. It's nowhere in the Constitution. It's nowhere in the U.S. Code. 
But one innovation is changing from what the founding fathers intended, which was a district representation on the electoral um, voting system uh, to a winner-take-all system. Well, that concentrates power into the hands of the party bosses, which is precisely what Washington warned against. So uh, that innovation has essentially made it so that our presidential election system last year, uh, what's his name, Larry Sabato of University of Virginia Center on Politics, said in March 2015 that the Democrat candidate, whether it be Hillary or whoever, starts with 247 electoral votes out of 270 that are needed. So that's like running a sprint, a 100-yard dash, and the other side starting on the 80-yard line, and you've got to try and compete. That's ridiculous. Right. So yeah. um, another, another way of describing it is the way it currently works. You know, there's a concept of reductum ad absurdum, reduced to the absurd, okay? To the elector system as it currently is constructed, let us say we had three candidates – Republican, Democrat, and Libertarian, and they all had roughly 33% of the vote, okay? But the winner had 34% in the top 12 states, okay? As a result, they would get all of the electoral votes. They'd get 277 votes by winning the plurality, 34% of the top 12 states. They would get 277 electoral votes. Thus, they would have the majority necessary to be president, and they could get not a single vote in the other 38 states, and they would be president. That's the way our current well, system is structured. So, well, with that as an introduction, I just uh, you know uh, let let you have some questions and let's go. Well, well, let's. Uh, I wanted to go ahead. Go ahead, and, uh, and then we'll bring in Susan. Go ahead. Not Susan. I'm sorry, Sunday. Yeah, I, I wanted to explain, and it's important for later discussion. I wanted to explain the process if one wants to become the president. Okay, I mean it was kind okay. of simple. It's quick, it's quick review, but okay. See, practically, you have the primaries. You know, Washington warned, warned us about political parties. So did Jefferson. All right, see, so I got the primaries. The winner of the primaries had off, and they well, well, have, well, first of all, the the primaries were not envisioned by the, the founding fathers. That's I know, I know, innovation. I know, I know, okay. I know, I know, I know. But let me, let me. Let me okay, continue. Right. Just a quick summary. All right. So you got the primaries, and you got the general election, and you got a president elect. Well, the presidential electoral system has not decided. So the electoral system meets. They cast their votes. Okay. So that's step three. Step four is the Congress meets in joint session, where the president of the Senate opens up the sealed electoral votes and the count the votes you know there you go okay now this is our president and then you go to the last step which is um you know on january 21st or 22nd the uh president is sworn in and then he becomes president so this process you know in, in, in the entirety is something important to know about because there's a there's a chink in the armor there's a potential constitutional crisis between the time that the election happens first week uh, first tuesday in november until the electoral system for the president, I was going to say electoral college, but I was corrected today by 
Mr. Manship here because there is no electoral college in the Constitution, but they've named it that. But it's electoral presidential system or presidential electoral system. So there is a, there is a crisis because if somebody dies or, or or can't serve, then there is no constitutional mechanism to deal with that situation. So Jim's going to take us into more details about the system and how it works and the finer points and, of course, research from the Founding Fathers, and I think it's going to be very interesting. Okay. Am I supposed to go from that point? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, very, very um, good review of what we've got currently going. But one of the things that's interesting is go back to the um, Madison's notes on the debates of the Constitution Convention. And I think it's uh, the 25th of July, 1787, the 3rd of September, and the 6th of September. And one of the things that's interesting is George Mason um, predicted that the elector system would only elect the president maybe one out of 20 times. They did not expect the elector system to be the definitive system. They expected that the alternate or the backup system which is the House of Representatives electing the president and the Senate electing the vice president, would be what would happen 19 out of 20 times. Now, that just blows most people's minds because that's not what we learn in school. And one of the things that's interesting Mm -hmm. is that, you know, who do we listen to? You know, one of the things I don't like calling an electoral college because – Guess, guess which president didn't go to college and was the best president we ever had? George Washington. Okay. There is a problem with college is that people feel that they're elite and smarter than thou the college. Well, if I'm, a, you know, so just by virtue of sort of my bias against college, I've been to college, but, you know, I almost am ashamed of it. Um, I, I like to say that I haven't graduated from high school or college because I skipped both graduation ceremonies to go on a dive trip the first time and do something else the second time. I just had them send me my you know, <laughs> degree and my you know, diploma. So uh, I, can, I can honestly say I haven't graduated. I've completed, but I haven't graduated. So in that way, I'm like Washington. I haven't, I haven't graduated from college. <laughs> anyway, it's just, you know, a, a bias. <laughs> go ahead, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but the, the, we have in America today, it's like saying, well, who are you to say? Do you have a Ph.D.? Do you have a Juris Doctor degree? If you don't, shut up. You, don't, can't, you can't talk on this thing. Well, excuse me. You know, if you look at the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, how many of those people were scholars? Well, they were scholars, but they weren't lettered scholars with college degrees. In many cases. So what I'm saying is that we've allowed ourselves as we the people, the common man, to be told that we have to listen to some lawyer tell us what the Constitution says. I would dare say the Founding Fathers didn't believe that. Okay. But getting back to the specifics of the presidential election system, first of all, the Founding Fathers did not imagine that there was going to be an elector system. I mean, it's going to be a primary system. That's nowhere described. That's another innovation. They expected that there was going to be so many candidates running for president. And if you look at the first few, mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, many different uh, presidents. 
that there would virtually never be someone who won a majority. Well, the election of 1796, um, you, you had, I think, four or five candidates, but Jefferson lost to Adams by virtue of Maryland splitting its votes, eight votes for Adams and five votes for Jefferson. The other states voted unit rule or state slate or winner take all. Okay. And basically the New England states voted for Adams and the southern states voted for Jefferson. But Maryland, which is a border state, voted mostly for Adams, and that's how Adams was selected in 1796. Well, what did Jefferson We need more do? elections like that. <laughs> right. But what did Jefferson do in response? He established an alliance with a leader in New York, okay, because other than New York City, most of New York was rural. So he established an alliance with Aaron Burr. Well, most of us in our history books think that Aaron Burr next to uh, Benedict Arnold was the worst traitor in America. Not so, okay? Aaron Burr was the roommate with James Madison at Princeton University, you know, which is kind of an interesting thing. Aaron Burr was a soldier in the Revolution, but he, um, he, was, he basically brought the elector, uh, electoral votes from New York onto the side of Jefferson, and thus Jefferson was able to win the election of 1800 as the Republican Party, not the Democratic Republican Party, as most academics tell us. You go into Jefferson's things and Madison's things and Monroe's, never will you find them describe their party as the Democratic Republican Party. You know who gave them that name? The Federalist Party. You know why they gave it to them? As a pejorative, the same way we call liberal Democrats or you know, uh, communist Democrats or something like that. Dem- Democrat was a pejorative word. It was a negative word. So they assigned it to the new Republican Party, the Federalist did. All right, so that's where Democratic-Republican comes from. It's a, a, a label to cast aspersions on the uh, re- new Republican Party. But the new Republican Party voted, and you had, as a consequence, they weren't that skilled as the Federalists, so they both voted. You know, each elector had two votes, and they all voted for Jefferson and Burr. Well, as a consequence, Jefferson got 73 votes, and Burr got 73 votes. Well, now you've got a tie. Well, if you have a tie, what happens? It goes into the House of Representatives. Well, Burr mm-hmm. wrote a letter saying, hey, folks, I expected to be vice president. Vote for uh, Jefferson. Well, Hamilton, who was a Federalist and was an enemy of both Jefferson and Burr, started circulating rumors that actually Burr was trying to steal the presidency from Jefferson, driving a wedge between ultimately the president and the vice president, and it's creating bad blood oh, wow. so they never worked together. So that's how Jefferson became the president, but I mean – he wouldn't have even been close if it hadn't been for Burr bringing the uh, New York electors. You know, he was the leader of that mm-hmm. thing. So anyway, then Burr gets dumped. You know, he, Burr has a duel. He shoots uh, Hamilton. He gets dumped from the ticket. Uh, Clinton 
Governor uh, George Clinton becomes the uh, vice presidential candidate in the second term of Jefferson. Right. So um, that's just some of the starting things. And then you go, let's go on up to 1824. There, can we hit pause for a second? Can we hit pause for a second? Sure. Okay. So our presidential chain of command, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, et cetera. So Washington won. He was kind of a landslide. Did he serve two terms or one? I think he served two, right, and quit. He served two terms. And, and yeah, he, he did. And then, and then Adams. Jefferson, oh, hold on. I'm, I'm trying a quick summary here. Yeah. Um, sure. Okay, so Washington was a two-term. Adams was a one-term. Jefferson was a two-term. Now, it's interesting to note the political alliances that Jefferson, by the way, him and um, Adams were very close friends, but Jefferson Later kind of outflanked Adams. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. They were, they were mortal enemies as of like 1796, 1800. It was Dr. Benjamin Rush who got them to be friends again, roughly again. 18, eight, yes, uh, in again, roughly 1820. Yes. Yeah, right. They, they had a falling out for years. Right, right, right. Yes. But I'm, I'm trying to point out that. <clears throat> Okay, two terms Washington, one term Adams. Jefferson had two terms. Jefferson beat Adams uh, when Adams was going for a second term because of his political alliances that you're describing. It's fascinating. Right. Electricism. Yeah, okay. I, I, Electricism. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and so precisely so. But, you know, what's interesting is the elector system, and, and that's essentially what's, what's happening, but it's not really what you see – discussed in the Constitutional Convention um, minutes. You know, they were, they were looking at a different way that that would go, and basically, you know, the best laid men's plans of mice and men often gang a glee or go awry. So the plans for a general election where many good candidates would present themselves and the electoral system, if anyone got a majority, then they would be elected president. But that's why George Mason said that he expected that to happen only one out of 20 times. Okay? So it'd be kind of like this year if all the uh, Democrats, you know, there were originally five and the 17 Republicans who were uh, in the primary, if there were no primary and they all went to the general election, is it likely that anybody would have gotten the majority of the electoral votes? No. Okay? So, as a consequence, what would happen is it would then go to the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives would choose from the top three in the electoral vote total. That's the way the system's supposed to work, okay? And so that happened in the election of 1824. Really, the election of 1824 is the, the one time that it worked the way the Founding Fathers envisioned it would work in the Constitutional Convention debates, all right? Uh, Andrew Jackson, General Andrew Jackson, hero of uh, War of 1812, um, won the popular vote, and he won 99 of the electoral votes, and John Quincy Adams won 84 of the electoral votes, and Crawford and Clay won lower numbers. Crawford was third and Clay was fourth. As a consequence, 
the clay was out, and so the House had to choose between the top three, Jackson, Adams, or Crawford. Well, Jackson was a general and wasn't part of the House of Representatives. Both Adams and Crawford were members of the House of Representatives. So it's kind of likely, hey, he's part of our club. We might as well join one of our – elect one of our guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John, John Quincy Adams, which was John Adams' son. Right. And he was a member of the House of Representatives. So he got elected. Now, most historians will tell you that the reason it went to the House of Representatives is because there was a tie in the number of electoral votes, 84 to 84. Well, the only reason there was a tie was because um, North Carolina voted winner take all. Okay. There were 15 electoral votes in North Carolina in 1824. Ten of them went to, you know, favorite son, a man born in North Carolina, Andrew Jackson. But the other five, I think four of them went to Adams and one of them went to Crawford. But they, because Jackson was born in North Carolina, they voted all 15 for Jackson, winner take all. Well, guess what? The House of Representatives threw out all 15 votes of North Carolina. Thus, in the history books, you'll see – you'll see that there was an 84 to 84 tie in the electoral votes. But actually, there was a 99 to 84 vote. But after 15 were disqualified, it was 84-84. But that's a very important lesson to how the system works. The House is the final arbiter of the legitimacy of an election in any state. And they determined it was not a fair election in North Carolina. So they disqualified all 15 electors. Well, guess what? The same thing could be done in California this year because there's illegal aliens being allowed to vote. Yeah. So somebody, mm-hmm. so somebody from Rhode Island could say, wait a second, those are illegal aliens being allowed to vote. That's diminishing my vote in North Carolina, I mean in, in Rhode Island, North Carolina, or Virginia. And so their elected representative in the Congress – and their senator could – all it takes is one senator and one congressman to object to the count of a vote in any state. You can see it on C-SPAN. The Democrats did this in 2005. Senator Barbara Boxer of California and Stephanie Tubbs-Jones of Ohio challenged the vote results of Ohio. If they had succeeded and gotten all the electoral votes of Ohio thrown out, then – Bush would not have had a majority of the electoral votes. Thus, the vote would have had to go to the House of Representatives. Well, guess what? Mm -hmm. He still would have won. He still would have won because the Republicans controlled the majority of the delegations in the House of Representatives. But what I'm saying Mm -hmm. is the Democrats had the courage. Well, right. They they opened the things. Those – Written objections, which is under Title III U.S. Code, Section 5 and Section 15, if I'm remembering correctly. But they um, were – they went back to each of their respective chambers. You can see that in C-SPAN. And it just so happened the Republicans controlled both. So what did they do? They voted down the thing. Well, frankly, a lot of the Democrats also voted against it. Okay. Because, you know, it's kind of like, gosh, I didn't know this could be done. It was, you know, it's kind of like nobody knew that this is the way the system works. 
But the Democrats did it right in 2005. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that they were on legitimate grounds, but they exercised the process correctly. Okay. And so they went to each chamber. They voted not to accept those objections. So then they went back to the House, reconvened the joint session, and accepted the electoral vote. However, what they could have done is they could have We need said, to push you know this. <laughs> we may have to push this this uh, election. I mean, it's it's ridiculous uh, about and, and Cindy was pointing, uh, you know, was kind of pointed out the earlier this evening, you know, about the the people that's being allowed to vote. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Right, but I mean, the other thing that could have happened in two thousand four would have been to say, you know what, I'm a Republican, but there are questions about how this election in uh, Ohio was done, and so it's only fair to say we cannot count this general election um, tabulation and thus the electoral votes that derive from it. Okay. Now, once that happens, then the question is, okay, does anybody still have a majority of the electoral vote? And if the answer is yes, then make a difference. Say like if somebody had said uh, Delaware, you know, cheated. Well, so what? They only got three electoral votes. It's not going to make any difference. Okay, you you can still have somebody. You could have all of Delaware's votes disqualified, and somebody could still have a majority of the electoral vote. All right, but since Ohio was there, it wouldn't have been, and so then they go to the House. So they they almost should have done that because then the Democrat, I mean, then the Republicans would have said, well, okay, uh, each state gets one vote. And I think there were like 30 or 34 votes that were majority Republican. So what would have happened? They would have elected Bush. Okay. So the same consequence would have happened. Now, interestingly, uh, Justice uh, Sandra Day uh, O'Connor in 2013 uh, was quoted as saying that the Supreme Court erred in hearing Bush v. Gore in 2000. And I agree. Okay. But notice she said aired in hearing. Not that the decision was wrong, but aired in hearing. What the Supreme Court should have done if they respected the Constitution, respected the separation of powers, respected the balance of powers, respected the checks of balances, they would have said the proper solution to this political question is contained in the words that are woven into the warp and woof of the fabric of this nation, this constitution, and the 12th Amendment. Therefore, we decline to hear this case. That should have been something, you know, obviously I was being, you know, artistic licensed with the warp and woof of the fabric of this nation. But they should mm-hmm. have said the Constitution, the words of the Constitution and the 12th Amendment provide the answer to this political question, this is not a matter for the Supreme Court to address. That would have been the Supreme Court properly honoring this Constitution. They didn't do it. They intervened in a place where they should not have intervened. The proper resolution of that is in the House of Representatives. What would have happened in Florida in 2000? The House would have looked at it and said, you know what, this is a messed up election in Florida. Is there any way to fix it? No, they've been working on it for the past two weeks. It's now 
game time for us, the 6th of January, 2001. Okay, we disqualify in the same way that the Congress did in 1824. We disqualify all the electoral votes of Florida. Okay, now, that's the first action. Now, the second question is, does any candidate still have enough electoral votes to have a majority of the total electors? Answer is Mm -hmm. no. You know, this is like a branch diagram, a tree diagram. Okay, decision tree. Okay, no. Okay, if they don't, then the 12th Amendment kicks in and the House of Representatives votes for the president. Each state, in the same way that each state gets two votes in the Senate, when you elect the president, each state gets one vote. And that vote, most logically, it's not stated, but most logically, that would be determined based on the majority of the delegation of that state. Okay, California's got uh, 38 Democrats and or 35 Democrats and, and 18 Republicans. They would vote for the Democrat candidate for president, Al Gore. Okay, Virginia's got three Democrats and eight Republicans. So they would vote their one vote for a Republican. Well, guess what? In 2000, there were 30 states that were majority Republican. So what would have happened? Bush would have been elected by the Constitution rather than by a roughly unconstitutional uh, Supreme Court decision. The same result would have happened, but we would have honored the Constitution. Why wasn't it that – why do you think that wasn't done that way? Because, <laughs> because the justice of the, the Supreme Court – either don't know the Constitution or they wanted to enhance their power. Oh, that's a brilliant statement. You know, like I said, folks, uh, he's going to be interesting. He's way deeper well, than I am. And I love listening to him. Let's can go I, ahead can and, I uh, come in? If, I, I was actually getting ready to get you in, Cindy. <laughs> go oh, ahead. Okay. No, that's, because, that's what I was talking about. Well, I was talking about opening up your mic. <laughs> yeah, well, he started talking well, real about – he was talking it, about Real, real quick, court. Cindy, but – Real, real, real quick, uh, if you'd like to chime in, give us a call at 347-945-7428. Go ahead, son. And, and let me, okay, let me well, say two other things. Uh, you know, on, on, let me just real quickly uh, from another uh, historical analysis. In the 2012 election, if you had had district vote system the same way that um, Maine and uh, Nebraska does, Romney would have won 274 to 264. Okay. The only other place in the past 60 years that would have made any difference is in 1960. Nixon would have won that election in 1960. Nixon, in one of his books, said the reason he didn't contest the 1960 election was because the recount would have taken various several months and that would have disabled our foreign policy. Nixon's either a liar or stupid Mm -hmm. because by the Constitution it has to be done by the 6th of January. Mm-hmm. It can't take several months. So, um, you know, since we all know about Nixon, I would say it's because he's a liar. What he did is he put it that way so <laughs> he sounds, you know, statesmanlike, that I gave up my own personal interest for the betterment of the country. Crap. He knew. Why didn't he do that? Because in 1960, guess what? The Democrats controlled the House. He would have lost under the constitutional way of the 12th Amendment. That's why he didn't do it. Not because he was being a great statesman. He was being a pragmatic politician. 
And that's the same reason why Gore didn't do it in 2000, because he knew he'd lose in the House, and he knew he would lose in the Supreme Court. So he sued in the state court, and then Bush took it to the U.S. Supreme Court. But Gore went on the area that was the the most favorable playing field for him because there were several Democrat um, justices on the, the Florida Supreme Court. So you have to look at the pragmatic politics to find out the noble gestures of these great politicians we've got. Anyway, Go ahead, Sonny. <laughs> okay, well, I, I just want to know, um, I, I have not extensively studied, um, you know, the early history of, you know, politics um, I've only just recently, you know, become activist in politics anyway. So I, I like getting the ear of somebody like you who's done the research. <laughs> I know that <clears throat> Jefferson was uh, an outspoken uh, critic of the Supreme Court. Um, did he ever, when he was president, did he ever begin any kind of a movement to change our justice system somehow, like through amendment or whatever? I mean, obviously nothing became of it because nothing happened, but did he even try? Well, yes. Uh, you know, one of the first things um, and one of the places where he was annoyed at Aaron Burr, because Aaron Burr was the president of the Senate, and there was an impeachment proceeding of um, – uh, gosh, the Congress, I mean, the the justice from um, Maryland, uh, Chase. Okay, Samuel Chase. And, um, you know, Chase was basically, you know, kind of like Alzheimer's. Okay, he was barely competent, but he was a reliable vote to Marshall. Well, Marshall was a Federalist. Jefferson was a um, Republican. They were cousins, but they were mortal enemies uh, politically. Okay, you know the the famous story of George Washington fathering um, uh, a child with Sally Hemings. That was by a relative and an operative of John Marshall. Okay, who is one of the people who did it? The other person was James Callender, who was a yellow journalist who uh, wrote was was sort of like a a poison pin for Jefferson against Adams in 1800. When Jefferson won, he expected he was going to be appointed to the postmaster uh, position in Richmond. And when Jefferson didn't do that, uh, he started turning his poison pin on Jefferson. And that's where the first story of uh, Sally Hemings comes from, is Uh, is a a vengeance story from this uh, yellow journalist who didn't get appointed to a federal position. Mm-hmm. But but did he actually try to change the the system of the Supreme Court? I mean, he called them a, a tyrannical ar- oligarchy. So well, did he do yeah, anything to stop not exactly the oligarchy? But pretty close. Well, he was trying to impeach Justice Chase, and if he had impeached Justice Chase, that would have effectively been able to do it. But then later he says um, the. Uh, uh, for impeachment is scarcely a scarecrow is the words that he used. Okay. Impeachment is an incredibly um, political process. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Bill Clinton was interviewed by, I think some uh, journalists who said, 
aren't you worried about impeachment? And he says, no, it's all numbers. Okay. Now, why did he say that? Because impeachment, you know, the, the, I'll get back to uh, Nixon, why he resigned and it relates to all that. But um, there's a difference between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans will hold um, bad Republicans responsible and kick them out of the Congress. I Democrats know. Don't, don't really do that. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not talking as a biased political person. I've been a Democrat. I've been a Republican. So I've been in both parties. I'm looking at this as a factual historian. Okay. Exactly. So, so anyway, but the the the, the circumstances is that you have um, the uh, situation where you have to have 67 votes to convict on impeachment. To impeach, you know, Clinton was impeached by the House. The House is impeachment. Impeachment of a public uh, servant is like indictment of a private person. Okay? That's the same thing. It's basically that you're being charged with wrongdoing. Okay? And then in the private sphere, you have a trial jury. In the public sphere, the Senate is the trial jury. Okay. Yeah, chief justice presiding. Right. In in the case of the president, otherwise, if it's not the chief, if it's not the president, the president of the Senate, in other words, the vice president, presides over the impeachment proceedings, and that's what Aaron Burr did in relationship to Justice uh, Samuel Chase, and Aaron Burr was frankly very fair, and. Jefferson didn't like that because, as a consequence, the impeachment effort against Chase failed. Okay, and so that sort of took away the the ability of the executive branch to go after the judicial branch when they get out of line with an impeachment proceeding, or the judicial branch, for that matter. Well, well, let me let me throw out some comments about Jefferson and changing things. First of all. When they wrote the Constitution, they couldn't have Jefferson around, so they sent him to France. And no, no, so, no, 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 no. <laughs> Jefferson, Jefferson was very involved in it. He gathered all the books uh, on the Confederacies of Europe and the Republic of Venice and sent them back to his friend uh, James Madison. James Madison and George Washington read those things, and they did essentially Ben Franklin analysis, uh, pro-con analysis. But Jefferson was very much involved by being essentially the research librarian of the documents that were used as homework to create the U.S. Constitution. But he wasn't at the convention. That's what I'm saying. Right. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, let's go a little further with Jefferson and do what he did with for liberty, which, you know, I've said over and over, without the Supreme Court, we would have been done decades ago. Jefferson cleaned house. um, I can't remember what the name of the act was. Newt Gingrich did an excellent expose and was even I was laughing when Gingrich did this. Jefferson and the House, you know, they were very upset with some of the lower judges' rulings. And so Jefferson said, "All right, we're not going to fund these people anymore. You're out of a job." And this is what Gingrich said: "Oh, this is hilarious because all of a sudden you have these a whole bunch of federal judges. They weren't of a constitutional mindset. They were no longer funded. They were they were out of a job. And so could they go to their friends? Well, they could go to their other friends in the federal courts and even the Supreme Court." And then they were, their friends would say, are you, are you out of your mind? They just, they just fired your ass, and we ain't going to buck this because we're going to get fired too. So he cleaned the house and got us more of a constitutional mindset with the judges. 
by eliminating those who were opposing it. So that was something Jefferson did do. Well, and indeed, you know, one of the things he tried to do, and, and basically there was a decision, you know, one of the most famous Supreme Court decisions early on was Marbury versus Madison. Well, that's where Jefferson was trying to do something about it, and Marshall made his case against him. But you know who the lawyer was in that case? Lincoln. Levi Lincoln. Levi Lincoln. He was the lawyer was the attorney- for the. He was the lawyer for the court, you mean? No, Levi Lincoln was the, law, the attorney general for Jefferson, and he did a lousy job on Mar- uh, Marbury versus Madison. And so, as a consequence, the Jefferson administration lost the case that they were doing, trying to essentially get rid of all the, the judges that Adams put in before, you know, sort of in the, the closing days of the Adams administration. And that's what Marbury versus Madison is about. Yeah. But what's, it's interesting, by the way, Lincoln, L- Levi Lincoln, was nominated by Jefferson to be on the Supreme Court and was confirmed by the Senate, and he refused to serve. <laughs> so there, well, a, here's the a man, thing. A man here's the thing, Lincoln, though, guys. He, he yeah, had recommended, he had recommended, yeah, we needed a Supreme Court, but he had recommended some sort of a term limit. Um, he was very much against the fact that Supreme Court justices were going to get a lifetime uh, membership, okay? And and that's what disturbs me the most because it's just like the the whole um, the whole movement out there to get term limits in Congress is you know the the philosophy behind that is just as relevant to the Supreme Court. In fact, maybe more so um, because of how they have become lawmakers instead of you know, Constitution um, interpreters. Well, there's a a place to Right, that's a good idea. Because nowhere in the Constitution does it say they have a lifetime appointment. It says they serve on the occasion of good behavior. What is good behavior? Well, Well, basically that's... No, there is an an early decision. I can't remember what it's called. It's from 1803 escapes my memory right now. But the reality is, is we all forget about the fourth branch of government. That's what Kelly is an expert about. Okay. And that's the grand jury. Okay. The reality is, is that if we feel that a judge, you know, know, we were talking about the impeachment process. The impeachment process starts with an indictment called an impeachment, you know, by the house. And then you have to have conviction with two-thirds of things. Well, if somebody's done something wrong, you can get an indictment and then go to a civil trial jury. And, you know, if it's a criminal thing, then you have to have unanimous. But it's far less political to have 12 randomly selected citizens, you know, evaluating whether or not there has been a crime committed or wrong behavior by a public servant than it is for fellow public servants to say this person has done a crime or misbehavior. Okay, well, it's kind of know, like the Scalia, old boys club. Scalia recently accused his fellow um, 
court court uh, justices uh, of of writing law. Now, if Scalia can't um, figure out a way to impeach someone because they're overstepping their um, authority, I mean, who can? I mean, are you? We've well, seen that anybody that tries to to um, file any kind of a, a you know suit or or get uh, get a um, a fourth branch going, nobody well, no, nobody no, is no, successful no, no, no. because our attorney general shuts it all down. But wait a second. Scalia pointed the way in U.S. versus Williams, 1992. Okay, it is inappropriate for a judge or a justice under our system to say, okay, this is the way, and I'm going to lead the way. Scalia pointed the way, and nobody picked up his challenge. Mm-hmm. I won't say nobody, but you know, Kelly and a few other people are trying to. But virtually nobody has done it. All right, and I say I say Kelly and I both have tried, and I came to recognition after several years of trying that I was doing it wrong. And the reason I was doing it wrong is because the Constitution doesn't start with I the individual; it starts with we the people. And if we're going to get mm-hmm. go to the the grand jury, we've got to do so as we the people. A citizens accountability team that goes as a group to session day when the grand jury is because it's very easy for a presiding judge or a prosecutor to say that I'm some sort of troublemaker activist and no we're not going to let you go to the grand jury it's not so easy to do that when there's grandma and uh, you know the you know the local doctor from the hospital and the local teacher and the you know, local secretary at the local church and the pastor. And, you know, when it's a, a cross-section of our society all going and saying, we've got problems with our public servants in the way they're performing their jobs, then all of a sudden, who are we talking to? Are we talking to judges and, and prosecutors? No. We're trying to talk to fellow citizens just like us, people who have the same perceptions. And that's what we've got to do. Right now, there's a barrier between – us and our fellow citizens on the grand jury, and we've got to work to tear down that barrier. That's how we get our public servants yeah, accountable to what we do. we got to talk about that more off air, but basically the right of petition is also to a grand jury, Hero of right. Jury A versus Garnerian, 2011 case, Adelie versus Florida, uh, 1966 case. You have the right to petition the grand jury directly. If somebody blocks your petition, they have violated the First Amendment. And you file a writ of mandamus and as a great example, in NRE, the matter of grand jury application, 1985 case out of New York, yes, the federal judge told prosecutor, you will get this information to the grand jury. So the corrupt people who have become the Justice Department set up a, a fence and a gate, and they're the gatekeepers. And uh, so that's something we have to overcome. Even the congressman, when I educated him about this, he had a shocked look on his face. Our founders set this up beautifully. In fact, uh, John Jay said, look, if you see him when he was charging grand jury, when, if you see any corruptions, you will present them. And that's why the word presentment is in the Fifth Amendment. So, yeah, there's the barriers. I believe, you know, a little more work, we can overcome this. But we can see how people are trying so desperately to prevent grand jury indictments or presentment. Anyway, that's enough of that. 
Well, you know, the, the reality is, is that the system that the Founding Fathers gave us is brilliant if we use its procedures, but that if we use its procedures, not if you and I use it independently. We have to work together as a team to make these things happen. But Unfortunately, the- we're not as smart as the Constitution anymore. You just have to be as smart as the Constitution, and we're not. Well, that's right, and you know that gets back to the point where people talk about the Article Five, uh, conser- you know, Constitutional Convention. I am against that because I say that the constitutional literacy of Americans is too low. I mean, as yep. I say, mm-hmm. Bush v. Gore, arguably, there's two ways to look at Bush v. Gore. Either the justices of the Supreme Court purposely violated the, the intent of the Constitution to enhance their power, or they didn't know the Constitution well enough to know that they shouldn't have been involved, they were, should have referred yeah. to the Alpine. So, you know, which is worse, that the justices of the Supreme Court don't know the Constitution, or they don't care about the Constitution and they want to enhance their power? Which is worse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Good stuff. I'd say that not caring would be worse. <laughs> That's what I would think. I'd say well, if you don't know it, you don't care. <clears throat> Well, no, the, see, one of the things that I share with people, and, you know, like I, on this thing with the Electoral College, people have been saying, well, why are you the first to see this? You know, and basically they're saying, well, why are you so smart? Well, I'm not smart, okay? What is the difference? What is the difference that's blessed me to be able to see these things? Well, I portray George Washington. Well, one of the, what do I do with that? You know, how do I prepare in portraying George Washington? I read what he wrote. You know, he wrote 40,000 letters. You know, Thomas Jefferson only wrote 21,000 letters. Have I read all 40,000? No. Okay, but I've read a lot of them. Okay, so I get to have an understanding of how he thinks because I've read so much of his stuff. Well, if I read stuff that he's writing to Madison or reading, writing to Richard Henry Lee, i got to read their letters too so that I understand the give and play of their you know, communication back and forth. So consequently, I've read a lot of the founding fathers, both sides of the equation. Now, when you took a a history uh, course in high school or college, did you read all of the letter of any of the founding fathers? No, you had an excerpt. Okay. The same way when you take a constitutional law school, a course in college, the professor's taking a small portion of it. Well, I teach homeschoolers. Mm-hmm. Well, I teach government. I'm going to be doing it tomorrow. You know what I have? I have a, you know, basically a compendium of original source materials. I require my students to read original source materials. Well, consequently, every year for the past five years, I've been reading original source material because I'm teaching it. Okay? So consequently, that's why I have a different viewpoint because I'm not studying what some Harvard professor put in a uh, constitutional law book that he's trying to make money from selling to all his law students. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I'm I'm reading what the founding fathers wrote. Well, it's good because that means uh, your students uh, are doing that as well. How many students do you have? I don't know, fourteen, fifteen, not very many. 
You know, they're not even no. they're not even teaching they're not even giving excerpts anymore in high school or college. You know, I I did some research for my daughter on a on a project that she was doing in college one time, and um, you know, our our main focus was it was a histology class and. It, the main focus was to find and use primary sources. So, you know, I I really got to know the process and 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 you know fall in love with primary sources because I going through school there was none of that was required. We it, you know Christine Timmons comes on here all the time and she she derails us because we we have not memorized the Constitution or. Oh, I know. Song. She really gives it to us hard. <laughs> she gives it. She's hard on us. <laughs> and um, you oh know, yeah, you I, don't want to hear some I, of the I things really... that she she she, she said or le- or emails and voicemails she's left to me. I won't even go there. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we you know well, but we are, you know, she's very... about about memorizing things. There's a wonderful um, session of Star Trek. And you can oh my gosh! That, now you're talking. Now, now, you, now you're talking my language, there, James. I'm a really <laughs> big Star Trek fan, on, especially the original. But there is one one program where they're in some distant location, and they call out the sort of holy grail, and it's the you know you hear them reading it, but it's kind of like a mantra, and then Captain Kirk hears it, and he says, "Let me see that." And it's the mm-hmm. preamble of the Constitution, and he reads it with passion and meaning. That's part of the problem: is we read the Constitution like a mantra. We, we don't even stuff. see it. <laughs> okay, you know, like how many people? Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting: I've, you know, spoke to thousands of kids before. You know, five thousand in nineteen ninety nine, and you know, most people are taught in school that the Constitution you know, put blacks in slavery, okay? Well, guess what? The Constitution is the first national charter in the history of the world to have any limitation on slavery. Article 1, Section 9 says the migration or importation of such persons would be forever banned in the year 1808, okay? Notice that it said such persons. didn't say slaves. didn't say chattel. didn't say bondservants. It said persons. The founding fathers recognized the personhood of the black people in this Constitution. And also, in the Northwest Ordinance, the Founding Fathers created the largest area in the world that was slave-free. The Founding Fathers were anti-slavery. But who sees that in the Constitution? It's not what we're taught in our school books. It's not what we're taught in our classes. But they stopped short of absolutely banning it because they never would have gotten the southern states to sign on. No, 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 no. Stop, stop. Which state boycotted the Constitution Convention and why? Well, I'm sure you're going to tell me. (laughs) It was tiny Rhode Island. Rhode Island dominated the slave trade, 60 to 80% of the slave trade from 1720 to 1808 when it was banned. Mm-hmm. Rhode Island. Rhode Island didn't even attend the Constitutional Convention because they knew from the Northwest Ordinance that there was a spirit against slavery, and that was a good part of their economy. That's why they didn't attend. Ultimately, they determined that their economy was more dependent on other things than slavery, so they came in as the 13th state after North Carolina. But 
the the real state North Carolina was at the constitutional convention. They didn't vote for it, but the point is initially. But Rhode Island boycotted it. They didn't even send people. Well, Georgia was the fourth state. Didn't they have uh, a great deal of slavery going on there? Yeah, but you know what's interesting? Georgia was the only state of the thirteen or original thirteen colonies that, in its original constitution, outlawed slavery. And guess what else they outlawed? Lawyers. <laughs> because slavery. Oh, I knew I loved Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I loved Georgia for some reason. <laughs> but, but now, but isn't it true? I mean, this is what I have read someplace. I don't remember where I read it. But isn't it true that? They didn't come right out and ban slavery in the Constitution because they would not have gotten states like Rhode Island and and uh, North Carolina and some well, of the others that had slavery. They would not have been able to get them to sign on to the Constitution and become a state. Yes, Isn't that true? Yes, yes. But, but okay. wait a second. Let's look at it from another standpoint. Okay. You know, it's kind of like put yourself in their minds, only let's take it in a modern situation. Let's say that we are going to create a situation now, but you could not have tractors. Um, you know, tractors were going to be outlawed in this new government, you know, in this new country. So basically, it was a means of production, and it was essential to the economy. And so it's kind of like saying, okay, you know, with carbon footprints, we're not going to allow you to have tractors. Right. And see if you would get the agricultural states to join such a union. Right. Well, see, I wasn't okay. I wasn't saying I wasn't being critical of that. I was just saying that's the reason you don't you didn't see it in the constitution. People people go on and on uh, derailing their their whole philosophy because they say, well, they they wanted to all those forefathers that that signed the constitution, wrote the constitution. They all wanted to keep slavery, and that, that just wasn't true. They allowed it because they wanted to well, start out as a nation first, but then because of the way they wrote the Constitution, slavery actually would have died a natural death if they had just given it enough time. And I think that right. is the reason why the South seceded from the North uh, eventually, no. because they realized that they were losing ground. They had... They had the Dred Scott decision. Now they only had two-thirds no, no, of the vote. No, 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 there, there are aspects of that. But yeah. taxing policy was more the issue. Uh, if you read the um, last um, address by John C. Calhoun in 1850, he predicted what was going to happen. Basically what you had happened is that, once again, the electoral systems changed each year – Essentially, the three-fifths of a person was imposed by the northern states to limit the political power of the southern states that had more population because of the slaves. It wasn't because the southerners thought these people were three-fifths of the people. It was because the northern states wanted three-fifths so to minimize the voting impact. Well, then, as you had immigration over the many years, you had a situation whereby um, you had – the northern states increasingly controlling the House of Representatives, okay? And the House of Representatives went into the um, control of the North in 1850. That's when the North started imposing various tariffs 
and taxes that was essentially economic warfare on the South beginning in 1850 when they controlled the House of Representatives that does the revenue measures. Real quick, real quick uh, programming note. Uh, there's only about uh, 13, maybe 12 minutes uh, in order to be <laughs> able to uh, call into the show. Now, we, will, we still have plenty of time. There's still more topics I'd like to discuss. Got a couple articles sure. uh, that sure, sure. you know we want to discuss their topic. But give us a call at three four seven nine four five seven four two eight because if you do not, you will not be able to uh, hear the extended period or participate. Now the show will go on, and the uh, rest of the show would be available on the podcast, uh, which you can find on iTunes and in uh, other places. iTunes and uh, other places. And so give us a call at 347-945-7428, because if you're not, probably in the next 12 minutes, you will be uh, ceremoniously off the uh, shelf. So give us a call, and let's go ahead and bring it back to you. And it looks like we're doing it uh, with you, James. And at the top of the hour, uh, we'll bring in those other topics. Go ahead, James. Well, hey, um, I I wanted to throw out a couple things about the uh, war between the states. Um, The North had an awful lot of industrial equipment. The South was mostly agricultural. How do you get? How do the agricultural people get their uh, farming equipment? You buy it from the North. Well, it was cheaper to buy it from England. So the North, to their representatives, said, "Hey, look, you know, um, the South is buying from England because it's cheaper. Uh, why don't we pass a tariff?" And they passed a tariff, and then they jacked the prices even higher. And the South was pretty furious. So there's a lot of tension there. Now we go back to the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson had some ideas about freeing the slaves and committee. They said, you know what, we cannot unify the South and the North if you put this in the Declaration of Independence. We have we have to deal with it now and kick the British off the continent. You go back even the um, 1750s or 60s, Pennsylvania, as a colony under King George, decided to pass a law outlawing slavery. And King George said, nope, you ain't going to do that. We're going to force the slave trade into your state. So it's a rather interesting history and mix, if you will, of um, slavery, not slavery, free people. And the left has made it so simple, and their simplicity is is filled with lies, left and right and right and left. Mind-blowing. Correct. Well, I've got a book. And Kelly, uh, I put the... And real quick, Jolly, because uh, as we mentioned earlier, we're having some, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties, and so I just uh, refreshed some browsers. We do have John and Susan on the line uh, who would like to chime in. So what we're going to do is go ahead and finish your thoughts, of course, and then we're going to bring them in. I apologize for your long wait because uh, I did not see uh, that you uh, wanted to chime in. And anyone else out there who uh, was wanting to chime in, I apologize. Uh, just give us a call at three four seven nine four five seven four. Uh, to wait, but let's go ahead and we'll get them in after you finish your thoughts. Uh, go ahead, Kelly. Well, basically, we need to get to the present political situation and the president and the electoral system and delegates and winners take all or not in a state because James has some pretty good ideas. I talked to him earlier today, and we got to get to that. But our, our nation's history is not what we've been taught. That's kind of the bottom line. Yes, and because we haven't been taught that, we haven't seen that the Founding Fathers, one, didn't intend for the winner-take-all. Okay, that's in the Constitutional Convention uh, deliberations, uh, debates in um, 
25th of July, 1787, the 3rd of September and the 6th of September. Okay, the primary players were uh, Madison, Mason, and Wilson. Okay, um, later on, Washington says, beware of the spirit of innovation and beware of the spirit of party. And that applies back to those um, discussions earlier. Okay, then you have the, you know, the various results of each of the elections. 1823, you've got a letter from Madison saying that the more equitable system and what they perceived would be what is done is a district system. In the uscongress.gov, there is uh, essentially an an annotated constitution, and there is an appendix there that talks about the intent of the founding fathers being the district system rather than winner-take-all. Doing that is probably one of the most important things that we could do because it changes the entire calculus of political, you know, presidential elections. And it reduces the incentive for stealing the elections electronically or by stuffing the ballot because you'd have to do, you'd have to steal it in all 435 electoral, um, you know, congressional districts or electoral districts. That becomes a much bigger problem than like they did in Virginia in 2012. They stole it in two counties and thus won 165 counties. Well, I mean, you know, we've got 13 congressional districts, but they essentially stole it in two congressional districts and thus won 13 electoral votes. Well, I mean, they, they were going to win those two congressional districts anyway. They just yeah, let's, stole let's, let's take, 145 let's take votes. Back, okay. One person at a time, back. please. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to encourage James to uh, take a step back because the question sure. is, how do the electors of the presidential electoral system, how do they come in to office? Where do they come from? How many does each state get? Oh, yeah. uh, That's yeah, what we talked kind of about part. Yeah. part. And, and, we'll, and, and we'll get to that. We have plenty of time, but I do want to get the others on. They've been on hold for a while. We also have uh, let's, let's others out there listening. Yeah. You might like to chime in. And then uh, if, if you need, want to uh, chime in or at least listen to the extended period, uh, we need you to call in within the next six minutes or uh, your audio will uh, shut down even while we go into our extended period. So give us a call at 347-945-7428, uh, and we will get back to this. But I do want to have other people be able to make comments. Uh, I, I have a feeling this probably would have been one of those shows where we could have probably done a fourth hour. Uh, but let's go ahead and bring in John. John, thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you tonight? And Susan, you're on deck. Oh, I'm doing fine, and, it, and it's a wealth of information. It's worth just listening. But I had a question, and I hope you pushed the one on the number name. dial. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I hope I'm pronouncing your name, Mr. Manchin. Is that right? Manship, like a man on a ship. Oh, manship. Okay. Well, thank you. I yeah, appreciate you. For four years, I was midshipman manship in college, so that was fun. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, well, I was curious um, for finding this original source materials, like the letters between the founding fathers. Where would you recommend looking to find that? One of the one of the great things that we've got is the internet. It is so easy now uh, to get the information about George Washington. You've got the George Washington Papers Project at University of Virginia. Well, you've also got the James Madison Project, at, you know, Papers Project at University of Virginia. And then, you know, there's also additional papers 
uh, of uh, for Jefferson at both Virginia and Princeton, and I think there's other papers of Madison's at Princeton. But if you do a, a, a Google search, and there's others of these people in the Library of Congress, you have, and I think the Avalon Project at Yale has others, and there's just a number of different places. And so you can go to these places, and you click on them, and you read them. Uh, there's there's a book, uh, Liberty Classics. You can you can go to libertyclassics.org, uh, I think it is, out of Indianapolis. And they've got a lot of these things um, available there. So that's just four or five different courses right there. Don't you have to be, like, um, hooked up with a college or something and have a no. – um, because no. that's kind of where what I found when I was looking for primary sources. A lot of times was I had to, I had to sign on with my daughter's um, college um, sign-on stuff, or they would not let me uh, see anything like that. There are some, there are some facilities that have like um, college term papers and dissertations and things like that that are limited, but most of these things I just mentioned are not. Uh, the only possibility that you might want to do is you would define yourself as an independent researcher, okay? And as an independent researcher, you know, that I think that's what I do. Um, most of the time I identify myself as an independent researcher. Uh, nowadays when I'm teaching, you know, I, I sometimes say I'm an instructor of American history because that's a true statement. But before I was doing that for the past five years, um, I used to say I'm an independent researcher. So most of the time, that's what I say. The only other thing I was curious is how do you verify with all the Internet, you never know what's authentic or not. How do you verify which is an authentic document and not something that's been altered to, you know, be propaganda? Well, you know, that's a good question because, you know, but for the most part, you know, like, even though University of Virginia is a thoroughly, you know, organization, the scholars at the George Russian Papers Project and these other places, they're pretty strong at being diligent to present what's there. And oftentimes nowadays with the digital world, it's so great, they can do a photograph. You know, they've got these fabulous photographs where you can actually read it in their own penmanship. And if you want to, you can cross-correlate what is in the, you know, digital image in, you know, George Washington's penmanship with what somebody has transcribed. And I've done that with some of George Washington's works, but certainly not all of them. I guess what he's saying here, let me give you a tip here, John. What I have found in my studies is um, if you look at, well, the language, it's not the way we speak now. Um, you can see Fs and Ss, like the Congress of Un the United States, is, you know, it, it's Fs right. and Ss, weird things like that. The language is, it's English, you can read it, but it's not us. Number two is you look at, oh, look, this is a PDF. Somebody took a photo and they uploaded it. For example, Howell State Trials, uh, published in England, 1719, Justice Scalia referenced the state trials of England. You can look and you can see, oh my gosh, this is original. You see little spots on the page. You see letters because, you know, back then they had the printing press, which, you know, they would have to uh, set um, the, the, the lead letters. 
and you can see the imperfections in the text. Not like our computers now, it's, it's perfect letters everywhere. So you can see the old style of the printing and the language. Right. And that helps that helps you see that hey, this is this is source document. I found a quote, this is a stunning quote by Jefferson. Um, I consider trial by jury as the only anchor ever yet imagined by man by which our government can be held to the principles of our constitution. Now I found that all over the web, but I, I had to hunt down the source because you know that from that one statement, you know, I wrote a book. So what I found was, oh, here's a source. Um, it's the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Society, and they were organized in 1905. Okay, great. And where did they get that from? Well, they got that from a letter, a letter to Thomas Paine dated July 2nd, 1789, where him and Thomas Paine were interacting back and forth. You read that letter, that is absolutely stunning. I'm like, oh, yeah. my gosh, this, uh, amazing. That letter to Thomas Paine, because Thomas Paine is like, hey, I'm in France, Thomas Jefferson, and they're trying to have a constitution. What do you think? What are your thoughts? And Jefferson wrote him probably daily, and you get these letters, and I'm like, oh, this is like what Einstein was to physics, Jefferson was to liberty. And so you, you can start right. to see the sources, who gathered them, when they gathered them, the fonts, the imperfections, the language. You can start to see, oh, this is an original source. Right. Right. Yeah, and sometimes those guys' handwriting is very hard to read. <laughs> and let's well, go ahead and bring in Susan because I do have the look because we do have the top of the hour, and I still got you know a lot of other uh, discussions uh, that I'd like to have. You know, material, as I said, it's probably definitely in show. We could probably do another hour or so uh, for there, but unfortunately, we only have uh, three hours, and who knows? Maybe I'll be able to do it multiple times a week at some point in my life again. Uh, but let's go ahead and bring in Susan. Susan, thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> uh -oh. Don't do a oh, that's not I, good. It is what it is. Um, I, I think earlier they were talking about Bill Clinton and the numbers being impeached, you know, and all that. Right. And Helen P. Chenoweth who was um, a representative, the only woman representative, a Republican, from the state of Idaho, the United States Congress. Um, she came to my George rainbow. Hansen. Well, he wasn't a woman. <laughs> but, yes, I know who George Hansen is. He was tortured in uh, diesel, which the, our government did to him. But uh, so, she, uh, she. You're probably talking, talking to Helen Chinoweth, right? Yes. Right. Um, she told my friend Bo, whose cousin is Senator Russell Pierce of Arizona, fame, that the reason Clinton was not impeached in the end was they had something or made something up on every single congressman uh, to make sure that that did not happen. The only one they really had nothing on was Ron Paul. Um, so this is why that never happened. Now, well, now, no, no, Clinton was impeached. He was not convicted in the Senate. You have to have 67 people to convict in the Senate. Okay. Oh, now, now let's they, look at the numbers. Clinton said, look at the numbers. Okay. There were only like 52, 53 Republicans. 
where I think it was 53. Where are you going to find 14 Democrats that are coming across the aisle and vote against Clinton? <laughs> Furthermore, right. of those 50 of those Great 53 stop. Republicans, about four or five are Rhino Republicans who typically vote for the Democrat. So all of a sudden, instead of having getting 14 votes, you're going to have to have 18 or 19 votes to be able to get well, to the 67 required. That so that's what, that's what he was talking about. Hold on one person at a time. Go ahead. Well, being as it may, we know that they have something on all of them at any time, in any place, unless they're they're very much like Ron Paul or like um, well, a couple others. Absolutely. It's, in, in politics, you have what's called opposition research. It's one of those things you do all the time. Uh, private investigators have dossiers on every lawyer and every judge. If you want to beat somebody in court, you get a, a, a good private investigator who's got a dossier on, on the lawyers and the judges. That's one way of, of taking on the courts. But, the, the, I mean, it's like all of us have our, our faults. But the reality, why did Nixon get thrown out? Well, the reason was because the grand jury said we want to listen to these uh, audio tapes. He sued. Or, I mean, they said, no, uh, executive privilege, uh, we are not going to give them to you. Well, the grand jury says, we, you know, you have to give them to us because we're grand jury. U.S. versus Nixon, 23rd of July, 1974, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the fact that executive privilege does not apply to the grand jury. It applies to the judicial branch. It applies to the legislative branch, but it does not apply to the grand jury. So. Days later, they released the first redacted transcripts, and the grand jury said, no, that's not what we asked for. We wanted to hear the audio tapes. A couple of days later, the first audio tape came out. It had all sorts of uh, foul language. And so the image of Nixon as a noble president went down because of all the foul language. Then a second one was released, and there Nixon is criticizing the Republican leaders in the Senate. Well, the Democrats already had 57 votes now, and you have a few rights, so you've got 60 votes. And then he criticized four or five of the leaders of the Republican Party, plus their friends, thus you got 67 votes. That's why he resigned, because you could start counting the number of votes, and there was a distinct possibility that he would be voted out because of the combination of the Democrats and the Republicans, that he had insulted his fellow Republicans and thus lost the votes. Well, there's other factors, too, to it, though. There's other factors, because when the famous Watergate 7 indictment came out on March uh, 1st, 1974, there was the famous famous 7, Erlich Van Holdeman, Chuck Colson, uh, former Attorney General John Mitchell. Yeah, seven lawyers. Yeah, seven. The famous Watergate 7 indictment. And uh, basically, they also named Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator Grand jury cannot indict right. the president. Only Congress can do that in impeachment. So that's they sent these results to Congress. Congress took this up, and in the House Judiciary Committee, there was uh, I think three counts where um, the committee approved unanimously. Several other counts where it was majority, and then it went to the and it was going to go to the floor. A friend corrected me on this. He was never formally impeached by the Congress, but he was by the House Judiciary Committee. So from the committee, it was going to go to the floor. Nixon knew he didn't have the numbers to say in office, so he had to resign. But the grand jury's involvement well, I know, but, but heavily instrumental. The point is, yes, they could have gotten an impeachment on Nixon very easily. 
But if he had not insulted his the leaders of the Republican Party and lost key votes from the Republicans, he wouldn't have been convicted in the Senate. Oh my gosh. You gotta wow, count okay. You gotta count noses. That's why he resigned because he counted noses and he knew he would be convicted after impeachment. They could get impeachment tomorrow. We could impeach Obama tomorrow. But we couldn't you know, get a conviction. <laughs> you can't get a, a conviction. conviction. Right. right. You know what's fascinating in the, in the mean, history of the but, world? But, and, you know, if, if there's the old saying, if you're going to go, if you're going to try and kill the king, you better kill him. Well, see, that's Don't what I'm saying. Him, and because, yeah. Well, and let's go ahead. Is, and let's go ahead and bring this. Yeah, let's go ahead and bring the conversation, uh, you know, to today and things that that are going on. Because I definitely want to bring those in. Uh, probably a little later than I would have liked to, but I wanted to make sure we got everybody in on the conversation for uh, our topic with our guests. Well, the so one of the things we were well, discussing. When I called you, I didn't know. Somebody called me and Yeah. Anyway, Hello. What? Kelly, you're still on the you're on the air, Kelly. Sorry. <laughs> oh I know. Well here's here's what's fascinating in the world of history, okay. You know, James just oh, said, real quick then I want to bring it over to uh to our other topics. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Well, if you're gonna take out a king you better do it good or he's gonna come ask you. Well, of course, uh bad King John of England started going after the Barons for signing Magna Carta. Nixon was a very peaceful peaceful resolve. Where is that done in world history? You have coup d'etats, you have other nations, you have assassinations. We had a peaceful resolve to get rid of the president. This is like a, a very rare and, instance and in all what of the world things, history. Yeah, and, and Nixon should be commended there because, you know, where I said he wasn't, you know, he said that he was a liar or, or stupid about 1960. Into, he loved his country, and rather than put his country through the decisive or divisive trial in the Senate, where he knew there was a distinct chance he would lose, he might not lose, but he might. Rather than do that, he stepped aside. Okay, and there were, and, I think, there were a lot of other things involved. But the point is, you know, if if put yourself in his place. If you knew that you were within one or two votes of 67 votes, would you want to risk it? Would you want to have two months of, you know, hearings in the Senate or two weeks of hearings in the Senate, you know, looking at all your warts and then having them vote whether they're going to keep you as president and you be the first person impeached and convicted in American history? It's more respectable to resign, and that's what he did. And let's go ahead and, and, and as I you know wanted to let's go ahead and bring things to the to the president. I'm sure uh, folks being you know no offense, but probably more interested in the president is uh, things happened in the past. Now, of course, you know we can correlate that you know that can affect things now. But let's go ahead and bring it to some topics uh, that you know are are recent. And the, the first one I got was an article uh, about uh, something that we're finally getting some policy uh, from Donald Trump. And one of the policies he's talked about is child care. And uh, I've got an article, that says, and this is about uh, Charles Crownhauer and some comments he made about the Trump's tri- uh, child care uh, policies that he's discussing. It says, Crownhammer Trump's child care maternity plan out Democrats the Democrats. And, that's, you know, especially some of the delays on I want to get their uh, take on this as well. Uh, I may not expect them personally, but, you know, perhaps uh, folks that they know as well as us guys, but also it says uh, conservative commentator Charles Krauthammer 
laid into Donald Trump Tuesday night for a child care plan that would out-Democrats the Democrats. In the remarks on Fox News special report Fred Bayer, Krellhammer called the reported plan to guarantee six weeks of paid maternity leave uh, to working women as an enormous new entitlement. How many Democratic parties or Demo- yeah, Democratic parties does the country need? But you already have one, he said. Uh, what he is proposing is to out-Democrat the Democrats. Uh, this is an enormous new entitlement that will blow the debt and, uh, when he says mandate, you will mandate from Washington. Isn't that the one thing that Republicans will all agree upon, the government stepping in and telling private industry what to do? He says uh, that will be paid for by taking out of waste, fraud, and abuse from the unemployment insurance system. If you believe that, you'll believe anything, he added. Crownhammer also mocked Trump's insistence that he's an outsider to the Washington establishment. I thought during the primary season, the argument for Trump was that he was a guy who would stand up to Washington Republicans, sold out establishment that refused to stand up to Barack Obama on higher spending, refused to stand up to him on entitlements, refused to stand up to him on executive actions, and therefore we need an outsider, a disruptor named Donald Trump, who would not do this, Crown Hammer said. And so I don't know how many folks have seen uh, or even heard any of what Donald Trump's uh, policies are, but one of them is six, you know, six weeks worth of uh, payments turning leave. Also talking about getting tax credits uh, for childcare, you know, for daycare. Also, now one thing I kind of like the idea of, of what he said. Uh, now this could be a benefit that perhaps uh, the employees pay into uh, if that's uh, you know could be a part of a benefits package. Whereas actually employers actually have some kind of daycare set aside. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an idea I think is a long time coming. Um, but being mandated from the, the federal government, I don't know, but, or maybe is another yet, you know, welfare package. And, and here's the funny thing is you've got Democrats now, or at least Democrat pundits, you know, the liberal pundits who are actually saying, well, how is he going to pay for this? Is this, it's ironic because when a Democrat like Obama would do any kind of, or even Hillary Clinton, would you know make any uh, you know well welfare welfare like plan? They never ask them how they're going to pay for it. And then now it's coming from a Republican uh, and, and Donald Trump. Now they ask, well, how do you plan to, to pay for this? Uh, but that being said, uh, let's go ahead and bring it to you, Cindy, and then Susan, and then you know, guys could chime in. Uh, two two questions. One, did you hear uh, about uh, Donald Trump's uh, plan for the child care? And if so, what do you think about it, Cindy? About it, I'm sorry. His plan to what? Uh, about the ch- his child care uh, child care policies. Have you heard anything on those? He had a, he had a, a conference about not, that the other day. Yeah, I I don't really I don't know anything about his child care policy, but I would say this: it would be very dis- very um, disappointing to me if he advocated government. Um, Sponsored health care, uh, excuse me, child care for people who work. I, I don't think that that's the way to go. I'm I'm really tired of the government thinking they can solve all of our personal problems, and that's just one more thing. So I would be very disappointed if he advocated that. Well, I heard the discussion about there being tax credits, and if there's ways to reduce the tax burden so that companies can provide more for their employees, that's, the, that's sort of traditional capitalism. I mean, 
That's what Henry yeah. Ford did and so forth like that. So I don't, I don't have a major problem if he's looking at a way of reducing taxes on corporations so that corporations can provide more benefits and thus that be how we have child care. Okay, fine. But I don't want yeah. a big government bureaucracy involved in it. You know, right. I've, sued, uh, I've sued the Child Protective Services in Arlington County for snatching eight children. You know, if we have the government getting involved in daycare, how many of our children are going to be snatched by the government? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, the, the, I, I, I am so opposed to what Trump said because the federal government doesn't belong in social issues, period. What is he thinking? I'm sorry. I, mean, I can okay, tell you what he's thinking. Well, he's <laughs> thinking he's being, he's being an idiot. If you've got corporations that are uh, across state lines where the federal government taxes them through the IRS, Corporate Tax Act of 1895, okay, fine, I might understand that. But when you start expanding this into small businesses that are only within the state, the federal government has no business in the child care business. Ah, I'm screaming right now. And, and what, what do you think, Susan? Do we, do we still have you on the line, Susan? I said I haven't read how he's proposing to do it, how he's going to raise the money or, you know, anything like that. So I can't... Okay, there's a lot of distortion coming from a couple places. If we can mute our mics, or if uh, if that's coming from you, uh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, But I know it was Rand Paul when I called helping him. I mean, I gave him what heck, and I love him to death as a politician, uh, about the dark act, which is a similar thing. You know, he's against government interference. I tell him, you have a choice. You interfere for the people or you corporations. And I have a right to know. I'm part of We the People and I buy that product. So I don't feel the government is interfering when they demand that the people who are buying these products know what is going on. So there are some cases where I believe protection of our lives is, you know, necessary. And I don't know if that falls under it or not, you know. Um, so. Well, it looks like nobody, you know, just, just just a little bit. I see. It looks like no one is really a big fan of his his plan, and, and I rarely ever do agree. Uh, you know, of course, the Democrats are going to hate it because they're trying to say, "Oh, it's only for rich people. It's really not going to help the poor." Blah 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 blah. Uh, but my thing is, is I and I rarely agree with Krauthammer <laughs> on much of anything. Uh, I, I really don't like the guy, to be honest. Uh, and I rarely, and it's probably because I rarely agree with anything he's got to say. Um, but in this case, you know, I, I think he is trying to out Democrat the Democrats. I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, and a lot of times I don't think uh, his analysis on a lot of things are on point, at least none that I agree with. But this, I think he has, I think he's trying to beat him to the punch. Because even in the primaries, remember in the primaries, I don't know how many of you guys watched the, the Democrats. Uh, debates, unfortunately I had to You know, just because of the show uh, Not that I really wanted to oh, But they talked about this topic a lot And right now, you know they're, they're really starting to get on him about policy And, you know, Hillary Clinton's been ha- For one, she hasn't really been out there And she's been having to defend herself About, you know, for, you know, the emails A lot in part an hour with her health They really haven't been able to talk uh, a lot of policy 
and now, so I think he's just trying to you know, jump the gun on this uh, for her. Because, but my concern is they talk about, oh, well, we're the only country in the world who doesn't have you know this kind of paid leave and, and what have you. Hey, you know, guys, guys, hey, you know, when a woman has a baby and it's a you know two people in the marriage or or whatever, you know, she's not the only one. I mean, yes, she has the baby. I'll give that. I'm not taking away anything from that. But you know what? He's the one that the baby. He's there too when the baby wakes up. You know, half the night or whatever. I'm sure. You know, there's feedings and things of that nature. But there's never any talk about, hey, let's give some paternity leave. Let's get. I mean, it's not even not even asked for paternity. I mean, paid for paternity leave. It's just do you get a do you get a week? I don't even think you get anything like that uh, for the guys. I mean, just like we get no decision when it comes to abortion. But anyway, that's a different topic. Uh, I mean. You know, I, here's what here's my thoughts on it, and I'm with you. I'm with you, Kelly. Keep the government out of it. I don't care whether it's local government or federal government. Keep the government out of it. Now, I think that you know, if you want to, you know, have someone who works with a corporation, and a corporation, uh, you know, wants to provide it as a benefit to their employees, you know, and that's kind of part of their pay, so to speak. Okay, and that's another thing. We hear about this all the time, and this might make the, the women angry. Maybe not. But you hear all the time where, you know, you, you know, they say, oh, well, women aren't, don't get the same equal pay as men. And, and then for some instances, that there may be some validity in that. You know, but, I mean, just for instance, we, we don't get six weeks off paid, you know, you know, for if you know, get pregnant or, or things of that nature. So, I mean, that's not something in our benefits. You know, it's, it's, becomes, it's part of the pay. I mean, I, I I don't ever get those because, of course, I'm not a woman, you know, so I wouldn't get any kind of, you know, paternity leave. But then they're but they're starting to compare no, no, us with other countries. Wait a second, under under um, uh, Obama's thing, you can decide you're a woman today and a male tomorrow, a transgender the oh, next yeah, day. So if you if you want to be a woman tomorrow, so that you can get six weeks weeks of uh, maternity leave, then you know consider it. Good point. <laughs> Sorry. Another thing, uh, my client got a mem, or what do you call them, you know, those funny little, showing an old-fashioned outhouse. We, had, we were owning these outhouses, and we were the first transgender, you know, because <laughs> everybody shared the outhouse outside. So if Target, any of them decide they'll put an outhouse outside, and everybody goes in it, you know, just like at the park. Ah, I'll go along with that. I you know, if I'm Google, I'll tell you what. You know, when, when, when people, you know, there, I, I do a lot of Google searching. And I heard uh, some the other day where Google was purposely, uh, like, bearing, you know, when you do try to do Google, Google searches on Hillary's health, it kind of buries, you know, buries those searches. And I'm starting to think they're burying everything that has to do uh, with you know, with with Donald Trump, because I'm on the first page of Google, and listen to the different websites that are talking about uh, his plan, okay? And, and and tell me if you find a commonality here, okay? Time Magazine, you know, Politifact, Think Progress, MSNBC, Money CNN, CNBC, U.S. News. Uh, Washington Post, NBC News, USA Today, Chicago Tribune, all those places are on the front page of Google, right, to try to research about his plan. What's, what's the commonality of all of those, uh, 
all those websites. Uh, Kelly? Uh, they're all in on it. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Uh, they're all what? They're all in on it. Rush Limbaugh did a mantra on the word gravitas. Well, the person doesn't have such gravitas. Never heard that word before, gravitas. But it's like in seven media. Oh, they talked uh, about that a lot in 2000. And 2000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, yeah, it's like you know, these media uh, stations aren't independent. They have their marching orders and they do what they say. I want to get to present today. I want to get to Hillary's health. This is the meat of it. And James's, uh, Mr. Manship's expertise is really helpful here. Because <clears throat> I want to go into the present mess with Hillary and her health. Okay. So, you know, the 9-11 memorial, she was there Sunday and she's stumbling. And, and other, you know, finally, there's other rumors. And finally, everybody sees that. Oh, my gosh. Now the DNC has to meet. Why they have to meet? Because they have to pick a candidate to replace her. So what happens? Well, according to the Democrat Party rules, in case their uh, presidential nominee has become ineligible for service, you know, health, uh, they win the lottery, whatever, they die. Okay, well, they got to have a replacement. It's right in the rules. The, the National Committee meets, and they pick who the next president is going to be. Roger Stone is indicating, and he's a consultant. I've met Roger personally at the Libertarian National Convention in 12. Roger Stone is a true, you know, libertarian kind of guy. And he consults, and he advises Trump, and he's come out saying that Michelle Obama might be their pick. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I heard a little somebody. about that. Yeah, they they, they, they got to pick somebody because otherwise they're standing in a naked no candidate and Republicans are obviously going to win. And, of course, the Republican Party probably has the same kind of backup plan. Well, okay, fine. Well, let's look at the situation a little more closely here. This is where it gets interesting. Okay, let's suppose... You know, I, I mentioned the process, the primary, the general election, the electoral, the presidential electoral system, the certification in Congress, and then you have the swearing in January. Okay, fine. Now, the Constitution makes it clear in um, Article uh, 2 of the president, how to elect the president, electoral system, and you got the 12th Amendment, which confirms it again. Electoral college will actually vote for the president, and they will vote for a vice president. Okay, so it's clear. Both of them make it to the Electoral College alive. We still want to run. Great. We've got a president, a vice president. After Electoral College, the president dies, what have you. Then the vice president becomes the president because of the Electoral College. But between the general election, this is where it gets weird. We're fighting. Between the general election and the meeting of the presidential electoral system, there is nothing in the Constitution that describes what to do. That would create a constitutional crisis because there's no precedent. There's no... Anything, of course, we can go to the Congress way back in, 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 you know, when that works out. But between that period, the general election, the winner dies, what do you do? We don't know. If you look at it from we've okay, had, we've the had one, We've had one case where that sort of thing happened. I think it was the election of 1868 when uh, I think Horace Greeley ran as a Democrat against um, Ulysses Grant. And Greeley was the person who got uh, Lincoln elected, if I'm remembering my, you know, uh, for the he was a newspaper man, and he died after the election before the inauguration. He lost anyway, but he died but so it, his electoral votes, you know, didn't really make much difference. But we did have a presidential candidate who died between the time of the election and the uh, the um, uh, inauguration, but he didn't win the election. 
That's but was the, this the before or after the Electoral College? I'm sorry, the Electoral I think he died. I think he died before the Electoral College, and the Electoral College then decided what they wanted to do with voting the things. I think it, you know, he probably got a few few less votes than he would have done. Oh well, let, let, let me let me describe the modern situation here, okay? So right. let's suppose Hillary wins, and then she dies. The left is going to say, "Oh, Kane, Kane, vice president." All the electoral college hasn't spoken yet. I'm saying electoral right. college because it's quicker. Okay, so the left is going to say, "Hey, hey, hey, you know, uh, Kane," because you know, but over here on the right, they're going to say, "You know what? I'm sorry, um, Kane came in on the to- coattails of Hillary Clinton. She can't be elected." And we're not going to respect electoral college. Well, that's a mess. So well, what happens if Trump wins, but he dies? Um, the Republicans are going to say, oh, yay, Trump wins. Oh, shoot, he died. Well, we're going to put in uh, Pence. And the left's going to be screaming, hey, 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 no, 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 no. Pence came in on the coattails of Trump. This, this doesn't work. Well, let's let the electoral college or like presidential electoral system decide. This is where it gets weird because there's a gray area, and it's kind of interesting how this could play out if Hillary doesn't get a replacement. And that's probably why the Democrats are scrambling because, oh my gosh, the implications here are huge. If if she can't serve or she's going to have be on stage and she's going to have uh, a seizure, no one's going to vote for her. we got to get her replaced. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? I mean, they're freaking out. This isn't fun. Um, insiders, that's how Roger Stone is about this, the insiders of the Democratic Party are telling them, yeah, the uh, um, the uh, executive committee of the Democratic Party, they're deciding right now. People, Bern, uh, Bernie Sanders fans are calling in like crazy, saying, get Bernie in, get Bernie in. They won't do that because Bernie doesn't like the corporations. So it, it's a bizarre – I mean, are they just going to pick somebody out of thin air? It, it's, it's a, a unique um, – this is the a question is, when, when, you, when you use the word – the pronoun they, who is they who will pick? Well, they, meaning the Democratic National Committee. They appoint okay, a replacement be, presidential candidate. All right, but, you know, let's, let's, say that, let's say they choose Michelle Obama, okay, as the him, replacement. Her, him, her, right. him, okay. Whatever. I think you know. Not Sunday. <laughs> but, you know, the, there's... There's the Trump card, if you want to call it that, or the tactical nuclear option, <laughs> if you want to call it that. And that is on the 6th of January, 2017, the final arbiter in such questions, according to this Constitution and the 12th Amendment, is the House of Representatives, the newly elected House of Representatives. That's where Mark Levin's got it wrong. He says it's the old House of Representatives. Wrong answer. It's the new oh. House of Representatives. So they're the arbiter, not the Supreme Court. Correctly. In 2000, the Supreme Court inserted themselves wrongly, unconstitutionally, into the Bush v. Gore case. They should have said uh, the proper solution to this political question is contained in the words of this Constitution. Therefore, we decline to hear this case. That would have been the proper Mm -hmm. ruling for the Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore. Oh, and then, okay. Then what would have happened is the House would have said, do what? Do what? And the uh, the Supreme Court would have said, go read your Constitution. Go find out what your duties are. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, so 
so all right. it's, and it's, so, it's a bizarre so scenario. And they say, they say, oh, okay, well, we disqualify the, the votes from Florida the same way the Congress disqualified the votes from North Carolina in 1824, okay, because there's such question about the legitimacy of the vote. All right? Now, as I said, the second thing in the you know, tree diagram is, okay, we've disqualified a state's vote. Now, does, you know, does, any elect- does any candidate still have a majority of the electors? If they don't have a majority, if no candidate has a majority of the electors after whatever states are disqualified, then it goes to the House of Representatives and to the Senate. The House elects the president from the top three, and the Senate elects the vice president from the top two. That's what it says in the Constitution. So the arbitrator would be Congress in January. Wow. Because, That's correct. You know, some people, I'm, when I present this to people, they're like, oh, uh, Obama's going to declare martial law. He's going to stay in office. No, sorry. Constitution well, says no, wait, two wait, terms, you're done. Thing. That's a separate thing. He very well might do that because he would be dishonoring the Constitution. He would not want the House of Representatives to be able to decide the election because – he knows that it's under Republican control, and so he knows that the, the election would be lost. If it got thrown to the Supreme Court, you've got a 4-4 tie right now, and are all four of those people on the conservative side uh, solid? I mean, look at, look at um, you know, the rot, the Roberts Obama tax, Okay. How did they get Roberts to vote for him? Because Roberts violated mm-hmm. the law in adopting his children. Okay, that he—it's illegal to adopt the children, the children from uh, Ireland, and so they got children from Ireland and sent them to Nicaragua. And Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, adopted them from Nicaragua, where there's no rule against it. But they were Irish children. And so that was a violation of international law. And they had that, you know, hammer uh, against the chief justice. I believe that's how they forced the chief justice to vote for the Obama tax. Well, that's amazing. Um, really? Wow. I have to look so, more into that, certainly. Okay, so let, let's go. I didn't know it was illegal to adopt somebody from. I know, I, now, I heard it's very difficult to adopt children from uh, Ireland, but I didn't know it was. Uh, well, I'm, I, may I didn't know it was illegal. I, I may have overstated. I understand some, uh, it was illegal. I believe that these children, in the way they were, there may be ways you can do it, but they didn't do it the right way. Well, I think there's even, oh, wow. I think there's residency requirements. I think you actually have to be a resident of Ireland for one year yeah. before you can adopt okay. a child from there. Yeah, so, okay. but, so whatever so James, the issue let's, is, let's, they let's, didn't let's, follow the rules. Right, right, right. Okay, so right. James, help us understand the electoral system. And how the okay. electors are in their position to where they vote for the president. Explain that. Well, that's course. where it's not really stated how that's done. So different states have different policies. Now, understand in the original Constitution, the founding fathers were very jealous of the rights of the states. So they did not define how you selected senators, and they did not define how you selected electors. Okay. And indeed, if you look at it in the first, you know, as far as senators, some senators were elected directly, I think, in one state in the first thing. Most of them were elected by the 
Senate of the state legislature, you know, the state Senate, some they were nominated by the governor and confirmed by the Senate. Some they were voted by a sort of a joint resolution of both the House and the Senate. And some they were, I think, one or two by the House. So different states did it different ways. All right. So that's the Senate. How the, the U.S. Senate? That's the Senate. Different house. Different states. Okay. Right now, so the, the, pres- electors, the, the electoral. The electors right. were done. Well, one person talking at a time, way. guys. Jimmy, <laughs> the electors were done basically the same way. Okay, some states, you had the state senate elect the electors. Some states did it otherwise. I think one state did direct elect, you know, popular election. Okay, so you had different things. So. The elector system and the Senate system were both part of the Connecticut Compromise to protect the interest of the small states. Okay? So, now what's interesting in that is, lo and behold, in the Progressive Era, in 1912, we have the 17th Amendment. The 17th Amendment requires direct election by the people of the Senate. Right. Okay, well, guess what? The second Senate of the 17th Amendment mentions electors. I never saw that until about a week ago. I mean, I've read it a zillion times. Almost, I've read it many times. Every time I read the 17th Amendment, I read that, and I say, why do they have this sentence about electors? Guess what? It's not in the Constitution in that. I mean, you look at the parallelism of the portion of the Constitution and then the portion of the 17th Whoa. Amendment. The second sentence is extra. Can you read the second old, sentence? Yeah, I can. I have to pull it out. Um, it, but what I, I was can, talking I to Kelly, I, was, um, I have to pull it out of my bag. It's in, in my bag here someplace. Um, here it is. Kelly, it's got George Washington in the front. That's, that's a joke, guys. Cindy, <laughs> I can't believe you just did that to me on, on Facebook. What did somebody do? Cindy Todd. Uh, are you, I cannot believe you did it. Okay. Cindy sent this to me in Facebook. I'm going to read this. Cindy, you almost got me excited, so I read the very last line. It says, because I thought, oh, my gosh, we've got some really great breaking news to, to, to put out here on Bard's Logic. It says, breaking news, Hillary Clinton has had a complete physical exam. Okay, there's a lot of blowing in the background. Can someone mute that? Uh, it says, breaking news, outside. Hillary Clinton, I understand, uh, Hillary Clinton has a complete physical exam after her recent stint with her fainting spells. There was a brain tumor discovered while in the process of giving her a colonoscopy. <laughs> so here I hear, yeah, so here I hear a brain tumor discovered. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is breaking news. And then I read the last line. During a colonoscopy, I'm like, oh my gosh. Ugh. Well, I was, you know, I, it sounds callous of me to get excited about a possibility of her getting, having a brain tumor. She just, but she's you evil. To, <laughs> you have to expect that in Bart's logic after dark. <laughs> oh, I said, what? That was almost a. That was almost a Kellyonian. I know that's not a word, but that's only a uh, Mordecanian. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a joke that you just pulled uh, on us there. That sounds like something that <laughs> Kelly would have uh, put oh, out there, but you did very well. I'm like, you had me to the last line. Oh. I was getting all excited. 
oh, 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 this just in on my text message. Um, the Democratic National Committee has a, has decided to nominate for president uh, in replacement of Hillary, uh, Congressman Wiener, and the VP will be Holder. So the ticket will be the Wiener Holder ticket. <laughs> Brought to you yes. by boss to you by Bard Logic after dark. <laughs> okay, let's do the That's second right. sentence of the seventeenth amendment. <laughs> okay, the seventeenth amendment says the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years. And each That's senator shall this is the first sentence. And each senator shall have one vote. The second sentence says, "The electors to each state, no, excuse me, the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislature." Now, Kelly and I were talking about that earlier. What is the difference between the requisites of a most numerous branch of the state legislature and the most numerous branch of the federal legislature? Well, the most numerous branch of the federal legislature is the House of Representatives. Well, guess what? You could live in Wairica, California, and be a representative in Los Angeles, you know, a, a member of Congress from Los Angeles. If you can get the votes, you know, to do so. But if you wanted to be a representative to the state legislature from Wairica, you had to be elected by the citizens of that uh, House of Representatives, House uh, General Assembly district in the California state legislature. In other words, you, you had to be resident there. That's not the so way for U.S. Congress. So what you're saying right. is the requisite, the requisite, the requisite or standard is for the electors. For the electors, the, you have to be from the district. And the people who vote for you have to be from the same district that you're representing. So the well, electors, the electors have to come from the district within a state. They're right. not nominated but, from the the party. Well, yeah, basically, it, it's that you have to be voted on by your fellow citizens in that same district. But the winner take all, you're voted on by the citizens of all the districts. That's where I'm saying potentially the 17th Amendment is pointing out that the winner-take-all system is invalid now by virtue of the 17th Amendment. Okay, so let's take a step back. Um, the electors to the presidential elect- elector system comes right. from the congressional districts, one from each district. So there's 435. Yeah, that's the way you're interpreting the way it. So 400, 455 uh, representatives, 100 senators. So the 455... Um, 435. 435 plus three for the um, District of Columbia. So there's now okay. 438 38. representative or electors. 
Okay, so 438, and they come, so the electorate for the electoral college comes from each congressional district. One electorate from each congressional district. Correct, simplistically, but hold on. That depends on how the states have done that. All that's required is that the state has the same number of electors as the two senators and all the numbers of Congress, all right? So California has 55. I don't know what the laws are in California, whether or not the electors live in each district, okay? I know in Virginia, I went and I tried to get the State Board of Election to give me the names of the electors, and they said, oh, we don't have that, we don't have that, we don't have that. We're looking it up in the archives. So I Googled it and found it on Wikipedia. <laughs> right. I mean, this is from 2012 and 2008 is their archives. Okay, so I Googled it and found the names, but I wanted to find out where the people lived. And so I'm searching on Google for each one of the names, and guess what I found? I found an address for one of the electors, the Democrat electors from 2012, on a list published by the State Board of Elections, which they couldn't find to give me. Okay. <laughs> so so, um, it, so I now have the list of both 2008 and 2012, and I know that these people actually live in the respective congressional districts. But they were uh, chosen by some process, I'm not real clear, that they were chosen, I think, by state conventions, and they presented themselves to be the electors, and then they were sort of elected by the party to be on a slate of electors, and each one of them lives in, a very, in the respective districts. So it looks like the people are voting on people in their district, but you don't see their names on the ballots anywhere. And you, you're, you know, it's not selected. I've got a friend who's an elector in 2012 from the 5th District, which James Madison represented the 5th uh, District in the 1st Congress. Well, guess what? That went 52% for Romney. But because they stole the election in two counties in Northern Virginia, all of the votes, including the 5th District, went to Obama. So my friend right. was disenfranchised by vote fraud. Well, and had, how do we stop that from happening? Well, see, we, this if, is, we this have, is what, if we have a district right. vote system, then there might be election fraud in those two districts, but they'd have to do election fraud in, you know, 435 districts. Well, how, how will we get it to be district voting, like like you're suggesting? How do we get how do we get there? Well, or are we supposed to already be there? Yes. Uh, the second question is a yes-no question, and the answer is yes, we should already be there. Okay? The first question, in my opinion, is that we file a civil rights case in federal court to get an injunction against the counting of electoral votes if they are done on a winner-take-all system because that disenfranchises uh, the voter group of, count, of county or country voters, 
Thus, it's a civil rights violation. Well, let, let, let me explain how. <clears throat> okay, this is a quick summary because I had to fig- had to ask a number of questions today, and I finally got it figured out. Okay. Yeah, in about three minutes. Yeah, because real, real quick, because in about three minutes, I'll have uh, it'll be time for closing thoughts, which will be a minute uh, per person before I have to close things out. Go ahead, Kelly. Okay. The intent of the Founding Fathers was the Electoral College or the presidential election system, the electors. One elector per U.S. representative district. That means, say, in Northern California, all of our electors would pretty much be Republican. L.A., okay, I get it. It's going to be Democrat. And so California would be split. Instead of a winner-take-all, you'd have a bunch of uh, Republicans and a bunch of Democrats going to their electoral vote. You have 37 Instead Democrats and 18 Republicans. Yeah. Right, so that makes 55. So what that means, what that would mean essentially is instead of 55 all for the Democrat, it would be split up 35-18, which would be a more representative form of government. The winner-take-all system is not good. That's right. what James is saying, and that's why he wants to file a lawsuit for the disenfranchisement. And and, and I want I want better. people in California to do the same thing. What I want to you know I'll be happy to share what I give, and y'all get somebody to do it. And I beg you to find some lawyer to do it because if you do it pro se, they're going to throw it out just because you're pro se. Okay. Now you know that's just my bias about how the federal courts work, but. I sued in federal court in 2012, and what really got my attention about this is that I was suing because the, the election was stolen in Virginia, in northern Virginia, in two counties. Well, guess what? You can go to the Federal Judicial Center, and they have a list of emergency election uh, cases, and they have them, you know, 1986 and uh, 2000 and 2006 and 2010 and 2012 and 2014. Mine's not listed. Okay. And wow. then I went on Pacer. I went on Pacer where you can search for your thing. And I looked for James Manship. I looked for State Board, Virginia State Board of Elections. I looked for the names of all the people on the State Board of Elections. I looked for the Commonwealth Attorney in Fairfax County that I sued. And I looked for the name of the Commonwealth Attorney in Arlington County who I sued. None of those show up on the search. And so then I called the clerk's office in Richmond where I filed it. They said, oh, no, we don't have that. We've seen you filed other cases. You filed a lot of them in Alexandria. I know I filed it in Richmond. But I decided to call the clerk's office in Alexandria and say, do you have a case? And lo and behold, they found it. They gave me the case number, and you can find it if you have the case number. But who's going to have the case number? I didn't even have, remember the case number. You're going to search for it based on the, the parties. And so they have essentially taken what I did in 2012 and made it disappear within the PACER database system. Wow. <clears throat> wow. So this case, if we no, introduce no, it in California, so if we introduce this in California and we're successful, instead of 55 for uh, the Democrats, we could be 35-18 and have a more reasonable representation in the electoral system for the president. Fascinating. Right. That's a, a main thing I wanted to get to tonight, and it took forever. But in a quick summary, that's well, what and, it is. And by now, the way, I, I suggest two systems, two different cases in two different courts. Okay, 
you have a federal court thing in Redding, California. You know, it's called venue shopping. Go to Redding, California or someplace else where there's a a conservative bunch of uh, judges there. Okay? File your county voters count two case there. Okay? Then go to Silicon Valley or go to, you know, uh, San Francisco and sue on electoral vote fraud because there are two Supreme Court decisions, one in the – you know, 1910 time frame, one in the 1960s, that said your right to vote consists of two parts. One is to cast the ballot, and two is to have an accountable system of counting all the ballots. Well, with right, right. electronic vote systems, you do not have the second part of the equation of your right to vote. Thus, every voter who has either direct response uh, electronic votes, VRE, or paper counting, you know, paper ballot, uh, electronic scan counting, unless there is a can count that comes after it, you do not know that there is a proper accounting. So you have been disenfranchised of your vote when, whenever there's an electronic vote system. Right. Well, that, that, that would be me. <laughs> that would be myself for, for quite some time. Now, we do have to, un, you know, unfortunately, close things out. Perhaps we'll be able to have this discussion, you know, another time to have you on, James. Uh, you know, and, and, and mixing with some other uh, topics as we do here. But, uh, yeah, you know, get people out. But it definitely, if you got the link, uh, share it out to folks so they can hear all the information. I have a uh, sinking uh, feeling that there's a ton of people out there who have no idea about uh, what we were discussing about, have no knowledge of it whatsoever. Well, uh, so I think there's I a lot was, of people out there who do not. But I have to, yeah, this, you know, I have to do our, I have to do our, okay. And, and, and unfortunately, as I said, it's definitely one of those shows that we probably could go another hour, if not more, right. with all the content that we have. But unfortunately, we do not. We'll definitely want to have you back on. But I do want to, it is time, actually, past time, uh, for closing comments. So each person probably going to have about uh, 30 seconds uh, just for closing comments for tonight. I want to thank you, James, for coming on. As I said, uh, definitely want to get you back onto the show. But let's go ahead and uh, do it this way. Is we'll do uh, closing comments with you, John, and then uh, the switch get about thirty seconds, and then we'll get to you, Susan, then and then Cindy, and then Kelly, and we'll finish off to you, James, and then I'll have to close things out. Hopefully, uh, I won't have to cut anybody short for me to close things out. But we literally only have about thirty seconds this time. Go ahead, John. Yes, I want to remind everybody to call the Commission on Presidential Debates at 202-872-1020 and request from you know, all the representatives from each of the different parties, at least nine of them, be showed up on the debate stages so we can pick the best president and call all the TV networks and your congressional people to let them know you would like to see all these people on the debate stage. And then have everybody call your government officials and have Mr. Obama pardon Edward Snowden. And then make sure that Mr. Manship comes back next week for an, uh, at least another three hours. <laughs> yeah, we may have, you know, <laughs> may have to do that or have definitely have another couple of shows. So let's go ahead uh, and bring it to you, Susan. Thanks, John. Um, just call on the TPP. It's coming up again. <laughs> So, call everyone you can think of to to shut it down. That's it. 
Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, let's get bringing it over to you, Cindy. Well, I'm going to end where I began. The, a bizarre election. Um, there, there's nothing in my lifetime like it. And I'm looking around at things that GOP elite are saying about Trump, the things that CNC is saying about Trump, and and how they are trying to detract from Hillary's problems and conditions. Um, they're trying to cover up what they're doing by accusing Trump of doing some of the same things that Hillary's doing. For instance, um, you know, saying that while well, Trump owns all these international corporations, so um, you know that makes him uh, a, a security risk. Yeah, let's we'll uh, talk about this too tonight. They have, yeah, they have to say that because. Um, because she's the national security risk, they're trying to, you know, move the attention off of her risk uh, and put it onto Trump. But I'm sorry, that's not going to work. Um, I don't know of anybody who, uh, I, I personally don't know of anybody who's stupid enough to change their vote for Trump because of some, uh, because of that particular. And and you will remember what I said to you, um, Robert. They are, uh, what Trump has done in the past is to work within the system, and he has had to do some deals with politicians in order to get things done, and he's really quite sick of it. He wants to change that whole thing around, and and so that a a, a corporation or a company like his does not have to go uh, begging on their knees, holding out their, their tin cup, and and putting or putting money into the hands and bribing people in order to get something done. They, he wants the political establishment to get off his back and let him be a businessman. He and you know he may be ready to retire and turn everything over to his kids. I don't know, but I know that he wants the rest of us in America to be able to do that. And, and I definitely want to have that discussion. I think that should be part of our topics for next week uh, is what you touched on. So, uh, folks, uh, definitely meet us next week to talk about that. Let's go ahead and bring it over to you, Kelly, and then John, and then I'll have to do an abbreviated closeout for tonight. Go ahead, uh, Kelly. Well, what I love is people like James that come on and they talk like I do about the intent, the intent of the Founding Fathers. We have fallen so far in so many ways, and now we are suffering. So it's been a joy, a delight, a kick in the pants for uh, Mr. Manship to join us. I hope he joins us again. Um, little thing we'll have to get to on another show. Got in front of a grand jury on the 24th, and then the grand jury investigated the uh, county election clerk, and I did a FOIA request or California records request. I found a contract that I can't get. I can't get a hold of the contract, ESNS. Isn't that interesting? That's for another show. Um, yeah, let's see. What? You're going to counter votes how? Oh, there's a contract? Yeah, okay, I can't get the contract. That's for another show, and um, we got to keep at it, folks. We keep keep inspiring others. I yield. Uh, well, and over to you yeah. uh, to finish things off. 